Testing, one, two, three. Testing, one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, DNA and the Book of Mormon. I am very pleased tonight to have on the show with us, live from Australia, Dr. Simon Southerton. Simon, how are you doing? Great. How are you, RFM? I love having you on the show. I know we've been working on this for about three months now, scheduling and everything to get you on the show. I'm just glad that it finally worked out before the end of the year. Yes. No, I'm really, really looking forward to having a chat. Well, I am too. And we've got about three hours set aside for this, and I know that we'll fill it up and more so. And more so. But um, before we get to that, can I just say one thing to you? Go for it. (laughs) Good day, mate. I've always wanted to say that to somebody. (laughs) It needs a bit of work. (laughs) I'm sure it does. G'day. (laughs) How how is it supposed to be said? G'day. G'day? Yeah, you sort of roll it all into one thing. Okay. Okay. Well, enough of that. Let's talk about you, (laughs) shall we? Now, you are a name that a lot of people who are my listeners, will know. But could you introduce yourself, give us a little bit about your background as it relates, first off, to the LDS Church, because I understand that you joined the church as a convert when you were 10 years old. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. I joined um, in Sydney. Our whole family uh, converted in Sydney, quite a large family, actually a Mormon-looking family, seven, uh, nine children. Um, and, uh, yeah, converted at the age of... 10 and was pretty excited actually because the Anglicans, we used to attend the Anglican church, we were very active in the Anglican, my father held a a very high lay position in the Anglican church, so we're a pretty religious family but I was bored out of my brain going to the Anglican church and um, the Mormon church had a much better friendshiping program with the missionaries so we had lots and lots of members of the ward um, became really good friends, and yeah, we we um, pr- pretty happy to join the church. So, um, and then yeah, I just uh, went through the uh, the youth program, enjoyed the youth program. Um, you know, I was the deacons' corn president, the teachers' corn president, the first assistant in the priest quorum, and then I uh, went on to serve a mission, married in the temple. Where did you serve your mission? Melbourne. In Melbourne, so you didn't get to go anywhere outside of your country. Yes, I wasn't particularly excited about going to Melbourne. But at least you spoke the language. I did, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So you're in Melbourne. How far away from Sydney is Melbourne? That's another another, uh, pronunciation you need to work on. Melbourne, Melbourne. Australians just say Melbourne. Melbourne? Melbourne? Melbourne. Melbourne, Melbourne. Melbourne, that's it. Perfect. Okay, it almost sounds like um, Meldrum, but we'll be yeah, getting to Meldrum later on. <laughs> there's quite a lot of a sort of rivalry between Sydney and Melbourne. So, um, yeah, I wasn't terribly excited about going there, and it was a fairly tough mission um, in the, you know, I think every single day for my first seven months we were abused in some way or spat on or persecuted in some way. Um, but that depended on the area of Melbourne that you're in. I moved in, moved into a Jewish area soon afterwards, and didn't strike any persecution for the next three months. So, it was, yeah. But, well, that must uh, yeah, have been no, a nice relief for you. That sounds awful. Yeah. I mean, I went to Japan, of course, for two years. 
I never yeah. experienced that kind of vitriol. Of course, the Japanese culture is based upon this idea of courtesy, respect. Yeah. And even if they were feeling certain things toward the Gaijin missionaries who were accosting them on the street night and day, they didn't let it show. They were always very, very polite. So I never encountered any of that. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't particularly nasty, but it's, you know, people winding down their window when they're driving past and and abusing you or saying something silly. Um, but, yeah, no, we, get, we got used to that pretty quick. Well, I understand from what you're saying that even though it was your family that converted when you were 10, you were not just along for the ride as far as Mormonism goes. You were actually extremely faithful, extremely believing, and very much on board with everything that had to do with the Mormon church. Is that right? Absolutely. Um, President Benson was the prophet. Uh, I, while I grew up, uh, Spencer Kimball was the prophet. So um, I, I just absolutely adored President Kimball. And uh, in my papers, in my call, I was counseled to read the Book of Mormon before I reached the... Actually, no, I think I got a letter from the mission president um, in Melbourne asking all the new missionaries to read the Book of Mormon before they entered the mission field. I just finished reading it, so I read the Book of Mormon again. You, you had um, just finished reading it. So actually, yeah. if you'd been so like I, me or pretty much anybody else, you could have said, okay, I can check that box. But no, you right. took it as a renewed... <laughs> call to you to read the Book of Mormon. So you yep. read it a second time. I finished it on the plane going to New Zealand to the Mission Training Centre. So I was not, I was well aware at the time that there were many missionaries who gained their testimony of the church when they got into the mission field. And I didn't, I, uh, I was not one of those. I believe that it was true. I didn't have a, um, I hadn't had that sort of, you know, on the knees experience where you pray and ask for an answer. I hadn't felt that and in fact that caused me quite a lot of concern for the first uh, three or four months of my mission um, every day I was pleading for a, a witness I desperately wanted the answer to be to receive that answer that burning in the bosom um, but I became that frustrated that I eventually I mentioned this to my mission president and he said look just don't worry about it we all we all um because I I felt those feelings when I listened to a you know, a talk or some music or or even as I read it. But I couldn't get it in response to a, a direct prayer as we were all taught. And so, it, um, and so yeah, I just uh, settled aside and decided, well, okay, I'd already received my witness and I didn't need it. But that still nagged me, nagged at me for, because we're clearly told in the scriptures that you could get that witness. So, uh, so yeah, I, but that carried me for the rest of my life in the church. I still believed that it was true. Didn't really have any doubts. Um, and you yeah, certainly, so, and you certainly uh, can't fault yourself for not having read the Book of Mormon. You read at least twice before you went on your mission. Oh no, I think I've read it probably seven. I think it was seven times or I think I read it. Um, probably had read it twice before I went on my mission, and or three times. And then a few, you know, several times when I was on my mission. It is an interesting aspect of Mormonism, one we don't have time to get into, but at least mm. to note in passing, uh, this promise. I mean, it is a promise. It is uh, promoted as Moroni's mm. promise, which is really God's promise recorded in the Book of Mormon, that if you read it with sincere intent and pray about it and really mm. want to know from God if it's true, then he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. And yet I think from 
the members of the church that I've spoken with, the majority of them have never had that experience the way it is promised and therefore go through a process of resolving themselves to why it is that the Book of Mormon is still true even though they tried the promise and it didn't work for them. Yeah. Well, I, I um, what particularly frustrated me was I wasn't looking for a sign. I believed this book was true, and I wanted to. I wanted the uh, the you know the answer. I didn't need a. I wasn't looking for a sign. I was just following the directions from Scripture. Um. So it was a little bit troubling, but I also um became troubled because you know there were missionaries that would say that they um. You know, they bear their testimony and they say they prayed in the morning and they were directed to a particular street and a particular house and they went and knocked on the door and they got in and gave a discussion and they eventually baptised them. And You just kept hearing these stories over and over again and some of these stories were told by missionaries that I knew were just complete and utter rule breakers. <laughs> um, and here I am uh, following the rule book and I'm just trying to get that witness and I can't get it. Yet these guys can have a direct channel to God and uh, he guides them to the, the right street. And I remember writing to my bishop at the time about this sort of thing and uh, I was basically counselled not to, don't, don't worry about that, Simon, just get on and focus on the work. Um, but, yeah, the, the, I probably put these things aside, didn't dwell on them for all that much longer and went on to serve a normal mission. Right. I don't know if Mormons are unique in this, but I think that uh, casting my mind back on my history as a member of the church, I developed a, uh, a very, very good ability, a very honed ability to not think about things that challenged my faith. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but you got done with your mission. Uh, and yeah. uh, what year was it that you returned home from your mission? It was 1983, I think. Yeah. Um... And, yeah, I mean, uh, to give you an idea of how committed I was, I was out in the mission field when they reduced the length of missions to 18 months. And what did you do? You extended, didn't you, you dog? I went 25 months. <laughs> 25? I didn't know that was yeah. an option. How did you do 25 months? Well, I just, um, it never crossed my mind to go home. There were quite a lot of guys, guys were on the next plane. Um, I, it's because of the university year. I, I think I left, I went into the mission field, I think it was in January, it would have been in January, and university didn't start till March, and so I, or late February, and I just said to the mission president, look, it makes no sense for me to get home and then um, twiddle my thumbs for six weeks or whatever. So I, I don't know if it was a full month, but I extended by two or three weeks. Wow. Um, I know that that rumor was going around in my mission as early as 79 and 80 and 81 yeah. when I was in Japan, that that yeah. was going to happen, that it was in the works, but it never happened. And everybody was talking to each other about what are you going to do if that happens? And yeah. the answers were differently. We all knew what we were supposed to say. Let's put it that way. Yeah. yeah. But you get back in 1983, I think mm -hmm. it is, and yeah. you go to college and tell us about that. What did you study? Um, well, I... I've always had an interest in sort of agriculture and growing plants, and I, I, um, I'd already done a couple of years of university before my mission, so I was in my uh, third year of university. And um, thankfully, my mission—one thing I gained from my mission was just the 
the um, the habit of studying or being able to focus on something for a long period of time. When you're memorizing discussions, it's, you just have to go really, really focus. And so um, I became a much better student after I got home. And so I think that's largely why I was able to um, you know, get a good result out of my degree. But, uh, you know, I slotted back into an ag science degree at Sydney University. Um, and I had a very interesting experience, actually. In the first couple of weeks that I was there, <clears throat> I just couldn't remember anything that I'd learnt in the previous, uh, from, you know, from three or two years earlier. Um, and it, it just took a long while for my brain to just sort of switch gears. So it was, I was very, very um, down, I felt very downtrodden after a couple of weeks, but then it just sort of gradually came back and then everything was okay. Um, but yeah, the university was very good to me. They had, uh, they don't often allow students to just say, oh, I'm just going to have a break two years. Uh, they're not used to that sort of thing in Australia. In Utah, it'd be obviously uh, be fine, but um, but yeah, they were very good to allow me a, a two-year break, and uh, I slotted back in, um, did very well, and eventually uh, graduated in. I think it was eighty-nine. Uh, let me see. I'm terrible so the, with years. I think that's eighty-nine. Might be I'm going off the um, <laughs> I'm going off the cheat sheet that you sent me. So I think you know more about me than I can remember about me. So assuming you got it right on your cheat sheet that you sent no, it would me, would have been eighty, uh, probably eighty six, I think. So I yeah, so I um, I I just scraped. I was one of the my grades getting into the university were one of the lowest, and so I just scraped into agriculture, and then I ended up with a first class honors degree. So. There's hope for everyone. Well, maybe it was 86 that you graduated with your BA degree so, yeah. or your BS degree. Yeah. Yeah. Bachelor of Science. Yeah. But then you went on to get a doctorate and that's what you yes. graduated with in 1989. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And what's your doctorate in? Uh, plant pathology. So plant diseases. And what did you do with that as far as a career goes? Because what I want to cover just in thumbnail form is between 1989 when you graduate with your doctorate and 1998 when you have a life-changing experience reading of all things The Enzyme magazine. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, so I grad, I, uh, the area that I was really interested in moving into because in, while I was doing my PhD, there was a massive explosion occurring in the field of DNA. So there was a lot of excitement about what you could do with uh, with DNA analysis in plants. And, uh, and one particular area that I was very interested in was looking at, at um, the molecular basis of resistance to uh, disease. For example, in Australia, we have our major crop is wheat. So we earn a lot of export dollars from selling wheat. And so some of the diseases, there are ma the, the major diseases of wheat are rust diseases. So it's uh, basically you get this, it just looks like rust. So it's a yellow or brown fungus that grows on the leaf surface. And uh, so I, my PhD was trying to understand how the plant interacted with the rust fungus. So I studied down the microscope, I looked at um, the progress of the fungus through the leaf and how the plant responded. 
And it's quite fascinating, actually, because there are plants, if they have the resistance gene, about 16 hours after the fungus lands on the plant, um, it, the plant has started to recognise the fungus is there. And you can see some physiological changes occurring in the plant. Whereas plants that aren't resistant, um, effectively, they don't notice it. They don't see the, they can't detect the fungus. And so the fungus grows down and through all, and so it spreads all through the leaf. Um, and then it forms the, the pustules, the red pustules that you can see. So, so that was my, my PhD was looking at that interaction. But then when I went, my, so my first postdoc, I, I, I managed to get into the John Innes Institute in England where they were starting to use molecular tools. So we're trying to understand the DNA of the host and the DNA of the pathogen um, to see what was going on. So, so you're entering into this field right at the time that DNA is becoming really accessible through technology. Yeah, yeah. So I, and, um, and it, it's because of the, it, it's um, particularly in the field, well, I, I guess it's in, it's in thousands and thousands of fields of research where this was happening. It was just a, such an amazingly powerful tool. So scientists are interested in how does that plant detect the fungus? How are these ones that are resistant? What are they detecting? And, and so what is the fungus giving off? Um, and now we can say about 20, oh, how many years later? 40 years later, they know the genes in wheat that give resistance and they know the genes in the fungus that the, that the plant picks up and detects the protein products of those. So there's an amazing amount of information that we now know about that process, and that's going to help uh, breeders to develop wheat varieties and you know plant varieties in many many fields uh, that, that have um, much greater resistance to pathogens. So I mean that's that's why um, this you know d the DNA uh, field was so attractive to so many scientists because it just got to the fundamental basis of of what's going on. Um, and of course, now they can um, they can modify, they can uh, add genes to plants so that they can be resistant. Can I ask you a question about Mormonism and your understanding of it when you joined the church? Yep. Because right. when I joined the church back in 1979, it was basically understood by I think everybody, at least that I knew in the pews, that the Book of Mormon itself, uh, the backdrop for it, was the entirety of North and South America. And that the narrow neck of land was the isthmus of Panama, like it would kind of obviously be if you were looking at a map. Is yeah. that what you grew up understanding? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And then there, yeah. Yes. I just wanted to do a check on that because uh, there were some things going on sort of behind the scenes with maybe the intel, uh, intelligentsia at BYU, but basically we all understood kind of what Joseph Smith portrayed it as being, which was it took all of North and South America into its ambit. Um, let me ask you this, 1998 rolls along. I'm sure you're being a very good member of the church, very faithful, even was called as a bishop, I yeah. believe. But in 1998, you are simply reading your Enzyme magazine like all good Mormons are supposed to. They're supposed to subscribe. And then they're supposed to read their Enzyme magazine. And you came across a certain article that caused you concern. Can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, that was, um, I was serving as a bishop at the time and it, it was a, an article by Donald Parry, who is a professor, he was a professor of, I think, ancient languages or Egyptology, no, I don't think it was Egyptology, I think it was ancient scripture or something. Yeah, it was something like that. Yeah. I've read some books and, by him. He was a professor at BYU. Yeah, but it, it was just childish. It was just humiliating and for me as a bishop and, work, you know, I've been working as a scientist for 10 years to, to read. What was the article about? The article basically claimed it was about the flood and the, the Tower of Babel and it was claiming that these events were real um, and it was only a misunderstanding of scientific evidence that led some scientists, some Mormon scientists, uh, to discount the flood, to not believe in it. And uh, and also, you know, the Tower of Babel was real, that sort of thing. So, But I, I was more, I was just completely, I, I was angry in, in a lot of ways because it's because of how much I devoted to the church. And here is, this is the Ensign magazine, the magazine that goes to everyone in the church, uh, insisting that the, uh, the flood was a real event four and a half thousand years ago. So all animals and plants on the earth were basically destroyed. Um, and there's just absolutely no scientific evidence to support that. Um, you could almost sink the ark with just the insect species on the planet. <laughs> I mean that's that's how ridiculous it is, um, and so many many Mormon scientists have thought and th pondered about this fairly seriously, and they just know that it can't have been a real event. Let's just get over this. And so it was just um, it wasn't only the frustration of that article, but it was whenever I talked about interesting science. At uh, church, even with another scientist, somebody overheard the conversation, reports it to the back, and it gets back to the stake president. The stake president comes around. This is on, you know, I'm the bishop at the time, and says, "Oh, Simon, can you, brother Southerton or Bishop Southerton, can you, can you, just avoid having those conversations at church?" And that annoyed me because here I am talking about truth and scientific truth that is so exciting. And I'm being counselled not to talk about it at church. Um, and so I guess that this, this article in the Ensign really frustrated me. And so I, I, um, I talked about it with a scientist at, at church and he, yeah, he shared my concerns. It was, um, and then I decided, well, you know, what do other uh, intellectuals or Mormon scientists think because the, the internet was was sort of kicking off. There weren't a lot. There wasn't a, anywhere near as amount as much material as there is on the internet now. And so I went online and but and looked to see if anything had been written uh, by Mormon scientists, and I just couldn't find anything satisfying. Um, but and but that while I was online, that's when I encountered a, a statement written by the Smithsonian Institute that really, really impacted me uh, strong, uh, profoundly. Yes, um, the Smithsonian Statement. I know it well. Smithsonian Statement, um, because I had been told in seminary that the uh, Smithsonian had used the Book of Mormon as a sort of a companion guide in their research. It was a field guide. A field guide, yeah. And uh, so this statement just completely refuted that. 
and then it went uh, described uh, many of the things, you know, all of the problems, a lot of the problems with the Book of Mormon that just don't align with what they're finding uh, in the scientific field and scientific research. Um, but what really struck me was just how, how um, just the absolute, um, how strident their statement was. They were... Scientists often don't make those sort of statements unless there's just absolutely overwhelming evidence to back up their claim. And there is absolutely overwhelming evidence to back up their claim. There is absolutely nothing in the Americas, in the archaeological and anthropological research that supports the Book of Mormon. I haven't looked so, at the Smithsonian statement recently, but I do remember learning about it in the 1980s. And the way I learned about it was part of FARMS, the Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies at the time, uh, issuing at least one paper trying to debunk or at least defuse the Smithsonian yeah. statement. And I recall it coming out, gosh, I don't know, the early part of the 20th century. It's really kind of old even, but mm. it sort of has a list. It's not a long thing, but it has a list of things that are in the Book yeah. of Mormon and then countering it with what science uh, understands to be the case, and in every single instance, they are in opposition to each other. Yeah. Well, um, there is now a modern, up-to-date Smithsonian statement, as you're probably aware, um, because several LDS apologists accompanied by U.S. Uh, Utah senators, LDS senators, or in Hatch, pressured, pressured visited the Smithsonian and reminded them where they get the, reminded them of where they get their funding. Um, and they then toned down their statement. They basically now put out a statement that just says uh, the Smithsonian does not use the Book of Mormon in any of its research. So just to debunk that faith-promoting rumor that circulated in the church that yeah. you heard that they had indeed used it as a field guide for their studies yeah. in the Americas. So, um, so, so that, but that statement had a really profound uh, impact on me because then I thought, well, okay, there's absolutely nothing. So I then went searching uh, using the search engines that I used. Um, so these are sort of looking in the literature, the scientific literature, and that's when I stumbled on DNA research. Tell us about, oh, I'm so sorry. I just interrupted you. You said you stumbled on DNA research for Native Americans? Yes, yeah. So I was, I was, um, I wouldn't have been, I wasn't looking for DNA research on Native Americans. I just started typing Native American into search engines in the search scientific journals. And when you, you know, back then, if you started searching, it was almost inevitable that you were going to stumble on some of the early research papers in, uh, well, not some of the recent research papers on, on DNA. Well, that ended up being serendipitous because that event ended up recasting a lot of your entire life after that. That becomes your passion. That becomes what you're famous for, at least in Mormon circles. Yeah, I wasn't planning on it. Um, it was serendipitous. Um, but it uh, I went through a fascinating two-week period there where I was every day, you know, bringing home you know, three or four new research papers on Native American populations. Um, this was research that had been carried out probably in the previous uh, six or seven years. 
the first work on Native Americans was published in 1990. Um, so this is 98. So, um, so over a two-week period, I was accumulating all of this research. I had about 30 papers by the end of the two weeks. I would, sh I would share these papers with my wife. My wife, Jane, um, also went through Sydney University and is a teacher. She's a wonderful teacher and very, very intelligent, got a fantastic memory, amazing memory. And she was, she could see the, you know, just by reading the abstract of the paper, she could understand the significance of the research. Um, but then I had an amazing experience about two weeks after um, first encountering the DNA research. Um, one evening we we sat down with our children, we sang a primary song with them. Um, we just picked Book of Mormon stories. And by the end of that, I was almost in tears. And I just knew that we were never going to sing that song as a family again. It just, it almost, like it just, something inside almost snapped, I think. I went to bed, I still believing, and very, but very confused LDS bishop. And I woke up in the morning and I knew the whole thing was, the Book of Mormon was false, without a doubt. I, I, I don't have any, I wasn't awake. I wasn't at the awake at the time where I just said, oh, okay, that's, that can't be true. This is, this is the truth. I, I didn't have that experience. I woke up a non-believing Mormon in the morning. Mm. Um, and it was just the most amazing epiphany of ever had in my life. I want to follow up on what happens after that, Simon. But before that, yeah. can you give the audience an understanding of what it is that you are learning from these research papers that you are immersing yourself in and why it is that it had that impact on you when you woke up in the morning not believing? Yeah. <clears throat> well, the, the research that I was looking at was all focused on mitochondrial DNA, which is um, it, it's a... It's the simplest piece of DNA in the human genome to study. Um, it has a very unique method of um, inheritance. It's passed from the mothers to the to their offspring. So the, all the children receive their mitochondrial DNA from their mother. Um, it's only a small molecule and the DNA technology, so it was easier to work with. And so um, scientists had, had, had isolated DNA from... I think by the in those thirty papers, they probably looked at almost almost two thousand Native Americans uh, from a whole range of tribes. So probably forty or fifty tribes scattered across the both continents, and almost exclusively, probably about ninety nine percent plus of those mitochondrial DNAs they were they were finding were most closely related to mitochondrial DNA found in Asian populations. So there was no, there was no obvious sign of any Middle Eastern DNA. So I thought, you know, they've tested 2,000 and they can't find anything. This was just, for me, an enormous problem because um, as a Latter-day Saint, I believe that Native America, I mean, I, I, I would... To be honest, I would be. Um, I was aware that there was an Asian influence, um, and I suspect that I thought it probably came in after the Book of Mormon period, um, as leaders have said in the past. 
Um, so I wasn't expecting it to be 100% Middle Eastern, um, but I wasn't expecting it to be, can't find any trace of Middle Eastern. Um, Simon, now, can you help me with this? Because uh, yeah. I don't understand this the way that you do. From my layman's point of view, it would seem to me that 2,000 people being tested, even if it's random and across a variety of tribes, still seems to be a small sample. And I'd be thinking, well, there must be millions of Native Americans. And if you only test 2,000, couldn't there be others that if you tested, they would have uh, Middle Eastern DNA? Um, yeah, that's uh, if you believe that the uh, Lehites or the, uh, the descendants of Lehi um, lived in a far-flung corner of the Americas, um, then I could understand somebody uh, hanging on to that belief, but that wasn't my belief and it wasn't the belief of all the members that I knew. Um, I, was firm, I firmly believe that um, the descendants of Lehi led major civilizations. There were hundreds of thousands of them fighting major battles. Um, so it, it just seemed quite obvious to me that um, there were no major civilizations led by Middle Eastern people. Um, so, so, so speaking from a scientific point of view, which yeah. you understand and I don't, yeah. a sampling of 2,000 uh, Native American DNA markers, that is enough to represent the whole of the Americas, North and South, such that there could not have been Lehites, as they're described in the Book of Mormon? Uh, I, I was certainly very convinced um, that they had, yeah. I mean, the, the other thing to, to also keep in mind was that at the time that I was looking at this DNA research, I was also discovering that um, the this, was, this fit very comfortably with all of the archaeological research on American Indians. So there, there's also no evidence of any Middle East influence in the archaeological record. Um, so I, I was becoming aware of the uh, apologetics as well, and even you could sort of you could see in amongst the apologetics that um, that there was just no clear sign in the archaeological record of anything that was very convincing. And the apologists were well aware of this. Uh, they held a meeting back in 1969 at BYU. They'd, they'd conducted about 20 to 25 years of research in, in the Americas um, through the, uh, at BYU. And Is that the New World Archaeological Foundation? Yeah, yeah. And they admitted at this meeting, they just frankly admitted that after 25 years we've got nothing. There's no clear archaeological evidence to support the Book of Mormon. And I'm guessing you found out about this later after 1989. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the main point I'm trying to make here, and forgive me because I know I sound like I'm beating a dead horse, but a reasonably speaking scientifically, a reasonable scientist based upon the research that you had read in 1989 would come to the conclusion that yeah. based on those DNA studies, the Book of Mormon's portrayal of Hebrew ancestors to many, if not all, but at least many of the Lamanites or Native Americans 
didn't hold up in light of that research. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a, a good, an interesting parallel is the is the surveys that we do. That um, you, you don't need to test a million people to, to determine what proportion of their ancestry is is uh, Middle Eastern. Um, the surveys, the, the political polling that's done is often done on just only a couple of thousand people, if not you know less, only a thousand people. If you poll a thousand people, you get a pretty a reasonably accurate estimate of how the voting will go. And and that was the case of the, the recent election in the US. The polling beforehand showed around about a 5% difference, 5 6% difference repeatedly. Um, so you, you can get a pretty clear sign. It would be pretty hard for if not impossible for a large population to have missed, to have been missed in that sampling. Okay, I, I'm getting the idea now better. And I do know that some of the apologetics that uh, came up around this time, or at least in response to this, have to do with increasingly diminishing the size of, I'll just say the Nephites, even though it includes the Nephites yeah. and the Lamanites. In, in decreasing the size of that population, making it smaller and smaller, thereby making it more likely that it would not show up in DNA. That's one thing, correct? Yeah. And another thing has to do, it's along the same lines as um, like those battles that you talk about, especially the final battle where there's so many people that are counted in the Book of Mormon. I remember reading through a Farms article and talking about, well, you know how in the Old Testament scholars think that the Israelites exaggerated grossly their numbers. Well, uh, the Nephites probably did the same thing. So when they're talking about hundreds of thousands, maybe it's just a few hundred or something like that. Yeah. The thing that I really struggled with the apologetics was that I had not been exposed to anything like that ever before. Um, and it just was, it just really... Um, because that's that's what I quickly encountered when I corresponded with with scientists at BYU was this idea that oh now they were just a limited a small group that they lived in one part of the Americas. Um, but having read the Book of Mormon so many times, I was well aware of what the Book of Mormon says. Um, I don't need an apologist at BYU to tell me what the Book of Mormon says. I know what it says and I know what all of the leaders of the church since Joseph Smith have interpreted from that book and it's exactly what I saw when I read the book. So this idea that they're a limited group that just snuck into a Native American population and then took over them, their leadership, to me was just utterly ludicrous and I'd never heard any leader of the church talk about this. So I really... I. Because of, I hadn't been immersed in apologetics, it was very hard for me to take it seriously because it was never out in the open. It, it never, I'd never heard an apostle or a, uh, the prophet talk in these sorts of terms about the Book of Mormon. So um, in, in many ways, just uh, that was my biggest issue. Um, and of course, I think why I think one of the reasons that um, Mormon apologetics is going through such enormous turmoil at the moment, and Fair Mormon is just sort of desperately clinging for ways to reach the uh, the you know the younger generation. This is how, why you're getting 
nutters like Kwaku L turning up, is that for many years, no, hardly anyone in the church ever looked at Mormon apologetics. It was just a bunch of scholars beavering away at BYU, fighting this fight. Nobody read it. So that was fine for the leaders of the church because uh, nobody saw it. But then all of a sudden the internet comes along and all of this um, scholarship, this Mormon apologetics, which is so so abysmal and so so weak in its... Uh, and and it doesn't align with anything that the prophets have said. Now this is all out in the open, and people can see it for what it is. And that's why Mormon apologetics is is struggling because uh, it's just it doesn't align with anything that the prophets and the apostles say. This is something uh, that I don't want to lose uh, the the yeah. thread of your um, your conversion or deconversion or however you want to frame it when you woke up realizing that the church or the book of Mormon wasn't true. But I do want to insert here that this is, uh, the running gun battle that's going on now between dueling apologetic camps in the LDS church. There's one that has a limited geography in Mesoamerica. And then there is the heartland theorists who, uh, are headed by, I think it's Rodney Meldrum. That's right. Yeah. And we'll, we'll talk more about him later. But it seems to me that essentially, and if I reduce it to its simplest components, the people who want to have it in Central America, uh, the, the farms group, and yeah. many of the professors at BYU, um, they want to have it there. The, the benefit of having it there is that there is a society there at the time the Book of Mormon says there is. There's a culture that has buildings. And most importantly of all, they have writing. They have the technology of writing, yeah. which would seem to be essential for the Book of Mormon. So that's good for them. The problem with that theory is that it has to ignore almost everything that Joseph Smith ever said about the subject. In other words, it has to posit that either we have to radically reinterpret what Joseph Smith said, or he just got it wrong and he didn't know what he was talking about. He produces the book, but he doesn't really understand it or know where it took place. On the other hand, the Heartlanders, they have the opposite set of problems, right? Their benefit is that it accords with what Joseph Smith said about it and other church leaders. So they have the authority for it happening in North America. And their problem is that there's no place with big enough cities and no civilization that has the technology of writing during the Book of Mormon time period. Mm. Yeah, so what you effectively have is the apologists at BYU, they twist Scripture to fit with the science, whereas the Heartlanders, they twist science to fit with the Scripture. So <laughs> they're sticking, the Heartlanders are sticking faithfully to uh, the scripture and also everything that Joseph Smith said. Uh, unfortunately for the BYU guys, there's just an absolute mountain of, of stuff that supports um, the hemispheric geography. It does seem strange to be promoting the scriptural integrity and historicity of the Book of Mormon, which was produced by Revelation by Joseph yeah. Smith, while at the same time having to discount everything that Joseph Smith said about where it took place. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a tough nut. But yeah. it's the morning now. It's the morning. Back in 1998, you've awoken with this realization. You're the bishop yeah. for crying out loud if you're Ward. What on earth happens? What do you do? Yeah. Um, well, the, f the first thing was for a, a, it was probably a day or a couple of days. I went through an emotional roller coaster. It was absolutely weird. I went from 
this sort of euphoric highs where I was absolutely thrilled. This just sort of solved all of these shelf items and problems that I had lingering along, lingering in the background for many, many years, um, as every Latter-day Saint who thinks has. Um, but then I went through just deep, deep de depression, just felt terrible, absolutely terrible. Whole, all of my belief structure was just sort of unravelling. Um, and then I had very fleeting moments where I thought, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd have a dream and I'd wake up thinking, oh, gosh, I've just completely misunderstood the science. And I'd go back and I'd look at the, the research. But it, it fairly quickly became clear that I could not function as a bishop um, if, I don't believe, if I didn't believe that the uh, church was true or that the Book of Mormon was true. Some bishops can, and that's fine. That probably took them 20 or 30 years to get to that uh, state of mind. I, mine was all concentrated into just a few hours, if not less. Um, so I decided then I just had to be released. So I phoned up the stake president um, and went in, saw him the next night and explained the situation. He was very polite, very kind man, good man. And uh, we just set in motion. Um, they wanted me to stay on. They actually asked me, Look, could you stay on? Because it takes takes about six weeks in Australia to get a, a new bishop installed because they've got to go through the whole process. So it takes quite a while. <clears throat> so having a bishop suddenly resign is very difficult. And uh, so that set in motion um, my release, which was in not the following Sunday, but I think the but about a week and a half later. Um and I spoke at my release. I was, you know, I didn't cause any problems, any grief for anyone. I made it as easy as possible for the for the stake leaders. I was, you know, I was been a bishop for a couple of years, so I was good friends with all of them. They respected me. Um, uh, and I thought the process was going fine. And then about, um, oh, I had a meeting at one stage with them and they brought along a guy who lives in Queensland, um, Gosh, his name escapes me, but he's he's worked on. Uh, he was involved with the discovery of evidence in Yemen that supported the Book of Mormon, and uh, he he came along to the meeting because the the state president was aware of this guy and they thought he might be able to help me. And uh, subsequently, it, it turned out that is it uh, Warren Warren Ashton or something like that? That's Warren, it was Warren Ashton. Who's, I did that without googling, by the way. I just want you yeah. to know. Yeah, his name always gets. He's a he's an interesting character, Warren, because he's also a UFO expert. And I've heard about um, that. He's all, and he's a, a travel agent, and he does tours to the Middle East. Isn't that amazing? Um, so he, I wasn't aware that he was hooked into the inner circle of apologists at uh, BYU, and so he um, he would have got in touch with him instantly because I, I think I might have given him a research paper or two. And uh, about a week later, I think uh, I was handed a fax by my state president that came from farms. And it was a, a pre-prepared document. Um, so the, the apologists were waiting for the first attacks on in, uh, based on DNA research. They'd prepared it earlier. They were, they were ready and waiting. Um, but this, I was pretty annoyed by this because I had not 
been difficult. I had not been telling people left, right and centre. Um, but a brand that anybody was troubled by DNA as a critic of the church. And Simon, is this, is this connected with your meeting with Warren Ashton? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure he was. He would have been the one that, that contacted farms. So you met with Warren Ashton? Aston, yeah, Warren Ashton uh, came to a meeting with the state presidency. And what happened at that meeting? Oh, we were just, oh, I would have just been discussing why I was troubled, um, discussing was- some findings of the research and he was brought in as an uh the state president brought him along just to see if he could help me yes yeah got it okay so but he wasn't able to help you but you did share with him your concerns about the dna yeah yeah and i gave him a copy of one or two of the research papers um so he would have faxed those through to um He's he's the only person that could have contacted Farms. No one else there would have known Farms. Okay, so you think it's through Warren Ashton that or Ashton that yeah. Farms probably got the high sign that there were concerns about DNA that yeah. you might be. Um, I don't know. Was there any indication that you were even going to be writing about this or pursuing this or doing anything? No, other no, than, no indication at all. Yeah. Um, but the the document had been pre prepared. It even gets more interesting. Because the author of the document was Scott Woodward and John Tvednis. Um Now, John Tvednis is not a, a – um, John passed away just a, a few years ago. He was, he was a pretty decent apologist, I think. We've, we've actually corresponded a bit since. Um, but the document – I had been corresponding. I'd been emailing – Scott Woodward backwards and forwards for uh, over a month or so. And this didn't sound like the Scott Woodward that I was, I'd been emailing and corresponding with. We'd had a friendly correspondence about, you know, we were discussing a very difficult issue, but it had been polite and there'd been no, but this was a, you know, your typical apologist attack, you know, aggressive piece of writing. Um, and but Scott Woodward wasn't even aware of the document, so he'd had a he'd had a meeting. I think he probably had a meeting with John, and they discussed this, and he probably provided some stuff to him. But then the the document was written; his name was put on it without his permission, and he knew nothing about it. So, uh, can you tell the audience who Scott Woodward is? Scott Woodward was a professor of um, microbiology at Brigham Young University. Okay, so he's a mm. member of the LDS Church. He's a professor yes. at BYU who is actually mm. in this field that you have concerns about. Yes, yeah, he'd been. So he was, I was put in touch with Scott fairly early on. Okay. Um, in fact, it would have been before this farms thing came to me. So it would have, um, I suspect that the state president probably spoke to the area leaders and they would have given me Scott's email address pretty much straight away. Okay, so you're speaking, you're speaking doctor to doctor, uh, professor yeah. to professor, so to speak, about these issues. And then at some point, uh, first off, it's uh, collegial. It's um, yeah. uh, talking about it like, a, I guess, a couple of scientists would normally talk about something like this. And then it changes, and all of a sudden, these emails from Scott Woodward become different. How so? Well, no, the, the, the correspondence that we had was fine. The whole, the whole lot of it. Um, Scott did, because he had done work on about 6,500 Peruvians, he'd isolated DNA and done mitochondrial work on them. 
And I mean, that was an amazing amount of work because only about 2,000 have been published. And here, was, here I was corresponding with somebody at BYU who had looked at two, um, close to 6,000, over 6,000 Peruvians. And he confirmed in his emails that, yeah, they were 98 to 99% Asian as well. So, um, and the Peruvian population was one of the ones that was lacking in the general study of the Americas that I, well, all of the studies that I'd seen. Mm. So this just confirmed my um, concerns. What did he have to say about that? Obviously, you're sharing your concerns that the yeah. studies that you've looked at show the same kind of lack of uh, Middle Eastern DNA as the ones that he's been researching in Peru. And it sounds like the Book of Mormon is not historical. You must have shared that with him. What was his response? Well, he, he was um, basically, he's had the benefit of being alongside, you know, limited geography apologists for a few more years than me. Um, but I'm pretty, uh, almost certain that he went into the research um, believing in the Book of Mormon the way that I believed in the Book of Mormon. It's a hemispheric uh, document um, and was quite, and he had to go, you know, he went through his own struggles with the uh, the lack of uh, uh, any Middle Eastern DNA um, and then just aligned himself with the uh, the BYU apologists. And so he was encouraging me to 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 look at the and to consider the you know the limited geography ideas, um, and we didn't really corres- correspond all that much. Um, Did something interesting happen with that email correspondence later? Yeah. Um, this is a pretty pretty sad outcome from um, that came from this. A few months after I'd resigned as bishop, I was asked by one of the area leaders, because I was talking to, I can't remember which area leader it was, um, I mean, Bruce Hafen, I think. Uh, but one of the area leaders just sort of offhandedly asked, oh, look, can, would you mind sharing the correspondence you've had with Scott Woodward? And so I copied up, copied the email correspondence and gave it to them. Um, <clears throat> and then... It turns out that this email correspondence ended up um, in the hands of the senior leaders of the church. Uh, there was nothing in that email correspondence that Scott had said that would cause him any embarrassment, apart from the fact that he did alert people. It did alert the leaders uh, who read this email correspondence to the problem that uh, they weren't finding any uh, Lehigh DNA in the Americas. It was all Asian. And... Uh, this um, this led to Scott having a one-on-one meeting with President Hinckley, um, I think in about 2002 or 2003, and he lost his position as professor at BYU. They shut down his entire research program, and he was shifted into the Sorensen Molecular Genealogy Foundation, which was located in Salt Lake City. Um, and this was a very, very difficult very sad outcome for Scott. He was very angry by it, about it because he lost a full professorship. So he was a full professor at BYU. They couldn't even main, keep him on the... President Hinckley was that determined in keeping him that far away from the um, BYU that he had to be uh, basically fired as a BYU professor. How did you find out about this? Hugo Perego. Hugo now, Perego. Can you tell the audience first off, who yeah. Hugo Perego is? Hugo Perego was a postdoc working in Scott Woodward's lab. 
And when I visited Salt Lake once, I went and visited the Sorensen Molecular Genealogy Foundation where Scott was working and did a tour of the lab and then sat down and spoke with him and Hugo Prego. And um, it was a little bit tense, I think, to walk around the, the meeting, around the building, and uh, it got very intense when we sat down and talked um, because Scott was very angry with me. Um, I didn't understand at the time what, what had gone on. I didn't know that the emails had gone to to President Hinckley. Um, I didn't know that he'd been f- essentially fired from BYU. And Hugo Parego was not aware of the chorus, the nature of the correspondence that I'd had with Scott or that I'd sent. Um, so fairly recently on the Fair, on the Fair Mormon website, he claimed Scott, uh, sorry, Hugo claimed that I had altered the email correspondence from Scott to make him look bad in order to harm his career, um, which is an absolute lie. Um, And I've confronted Prego about this, but he continues. This was on the Fair Mormon website as as recently as six months ago, probably still there, Um, but it's just a complete lie. Um, It's quite clear to me what's going on here. Um, the contents of the email that uh, most troubled President Hinckley would have been the fact that they can't find Lehigh DNA in the Americas. And so he just, uh, President Hinckley being a PR man would have known, right, out, we can't have any of this happening at BYU. And so that's what caused uh, Scott to be uh, removed from BYU. So you learned about all this that had happened directly from Scott Woodward? Uh, no, I learned most. I it it took me a while to piece all this together. There were people that were in Scott Woodward's ward, um, who were in the ex-Mormon community, who talked about him bearing his testimony and how he had to be released because he was a bishop at the time as well. So he was released as a bishop, um, and then moved to because he was a BYU bishop, a bishop of BYU youth ward, um, and but no, Hugo Prego really revealed what had gone on. Um, in his uh, fair post, it was that's because I was always, I was trying to figure out what was going on, and then it would all it all fell into place when Hugo Prego claimed that I'd altered the emails. Is this just sort of a generic claim, or is he specifically saying you altered this to say this? Uh, just a generic. He said I edited the emails to make Scott look bad. Hmm. Well, either he's I making that up. I, no, he's claimed that I deliberately altered the emails to uh, to hurt Scott's career. Okay, so either... He told me that Scott's career had been hurt. Yes. I knew from his colleagues at BYU that Scott was very angry about losing his professorship, and I knew that he had had a one-on-one meeting with President Hinckley. How did you know that? Uh, Ex-Mormons who were in his ward. Mm, okay. So I've just pieced together all of these sorts of things um, because I'm just fascinated to get to the bottom of it. What, what truly happened. I, right. I know for a fact that I didn't touch those emails. They were exactly what Scott had typed. And it, it also included my correspondence. So it was, a, it was a big document, probably 60 pages worth. Wow. Well, well probably, we probably won't get to the bottom of that mystery here, but it strikes me that either Hugo is just making this up out of whole cloth or he's repeating what he would have heard from the only source that would have had knowledge of that, which would have been Scott Woodward, which could yeah. reflect his justification that he may have made 
to President Hinckley. The parts that President Hinckley found problematic, he might have said, hey, I didn't write that. That's been altered. But I don't know because I wasn't there. Yeah, well, this, this is, I mean, Hugo Parego was not privy to the correspondence, really, that I'd had with Scott. So, I mean, he's just making, he's just uh, trying to work out what's going on himself. So he's obviously a good friend of Scott Woodward's and, uh, yeah, so. But, so. Uh, he's, he's ranting and raving in this uh, document and the accusations to me, helped to me to work out what had happened. Well, the only reason I even know the name Hugo Perego is because I know that back when I used to subscribe to the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, they'd have an occasional article about DNA in the Book of Mormon, and as often yeah. as not, he was the author. Yes, yes. So he's the he's done quite a lot of research on Native Americans, some excellent research on the mitochondrial DNA of um, Native Americans, and he's also the major author of the LDS essay on DNA. So, because um, that borrows very heavily from some of the previous stuff that he's written. Well, after this, after this, you ended up coming to public awareness through a number of incidents. I think one of them had to do with your publishing your exit story in the year 2000 on an ex-Mormon message board. Yep. That was back in the days when social media was the Wild West. <laughs> <laughs> It was a fascinating time because there were, um, so yeah, but I posted on the biggest uh, board at the time, which is the, uh, the Ex-Mormon Foundation's Recovery from Mormonism website. Um, and there was a, just a huge response to that. Um, that was published, I published that in 2000, right? So that's, that's two years after I resigned from the church. One of the reasons was that it took me about a year to build up the courage uh, to post that, it's because it's got my name on it. I don't go and I'm not anonymous on anything I do on online. And so, yeah, I posted my story and there's been a norm. There was a huge response to that. It became that big that I just couldn't deal with the email correspondence and, and um, because you could, I hadn't previously had my email at the bottom so people could get in touch with me, but I had to remove it eventually. Um, so, yeah, the... Um, so that then I think that then I sort of just decided after about by about 2000, I think I decided that I was going to write a book and that's largely because I was just so uncomfortable with the way the apologetics, what that um, was heading. And, and that first book of yours, as I recall, was um, Losing a Lost Tribe. Yeah. Came out in 2004. Yes, yeah. What is the main thesis of that? I think I can guess, but why don't you tell us? Uh, well, it's it's basically the sort of things that we've discovered, that, that we've, sorry, we, we've been uh, discussing. Um, so it, uh, but it it looks broadly at the, at the well, it looks at the, the narrative of the Book of Mormon, what the Book of Mormon really says, what all of the apostles and prophets have said about the Book of Mormon over the years, um, which really does... Uh, reinforce the hemispheric geography, that these were a people that made a dramatic impact on the Americas. Um, and then I uh, described the apologetic responses um, to, uh, over the years and then talk about the DNA, um, mitochondrial DNA research and 
the upshot of that research. Uh, so it's... Is it fair to say that the book basically debunks the Book of Mormon as historically accurate? Pretty much. Okay. I certainly consider the DNA evidence to be the... Uh, there's an awful lot of it. Um, there's an awful lot of lack of evidence for the Book of Mormon. <laughs> there's an overwhelming lack of evidence for the Book of Mormon from on the archaeological and from the, from the anthropological research. And the DNA is just uh, completely aligned with that, so completely supports those conclusions. So yeah, it's almost, the, it's almost like the DNA has come to the point where it's not just a lack of evidence for the Book of Mormon, it is actually evidence against the Book of Mormon. Would you agree with that? I, I think so. It's, it's certainly, in my view, and I think in the view, in the minds of many people, it's the most powerful evidence because it is so objective. Really, DNA analysis is effectively just glorified mathematics with huge numbers. Mm-hmm. Just looking for, um, amongst the thousands and thousands of uh, DNA differences that you see between people's genomes, it's just, it's, it, uh, it doesn't have an agenda. It's just saying, okay, what are the most similar bits of DNA, of DNA going around the world? And it consistently shows that Native Americans are far more, far more closely related to Asians. They just have far many, and it, it's not something that could just be by chance. This is for thousands of individuals that have been DNA tested and they always show a, a closer link to Asia. So it's, it's, absolute, it's, it's absolutely conclusive that um, Middle Eastern the Middle Eastern presence in the Americas is undetectable. Pre-Columbian Middle Eastern DNA can't be detected. It's below the level of detection. And over the last 10 to 15 years, as we may talk about later on, the evidence has become even larger because we've now moved into the whole genome field of research. So rather than just looking at the mitochondrial DNA, scientists are now looking at entire genomes. Right, the science... I'm sorry, sorry. I was just going to say the science has advanced to the point where they can actually look at these uh, pieces of the uh, DNA strand other than the mitochondrial, which are even more specific, but they're also more difficult to see. But now they can see them and their research there ends up corroborating what earlier scientists had said about the mitochondrial DNA. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's, It's just incredibly powerful. Like mitochondrial DNA, if you, if you, Consider a family tree going back 10 generations. 10 generations ago, you've got a 1,000 th- ancestors. Well, the mitochondrial DNA tells you about one of those ancestors, whereas genomic DNA tells you potentially about all of them. So it's a, it's a vastly more powerful technology. So we, in mitochondrial analysis, you, because it's a tiny bit of DNA and you're only looking, scientists are only looking at about 10 or 20 um, mutations are genealogically interesting. In the human genome, it's about a million. And so that gives you an idea of just how much more information and how how deeper and how much more sensitive the technology is these days. They can detect down to a fraction of a percent of a person's DNA, where it came from around the the globe. Um, And this is exactly the same technology that's used by Ancestry. So 
Um, when you get your DNA done by a, a DNA company these days and they're doing your ge- their whole genome, they will screen about half a million mutations in your DNA to determine where your DNA comes from. And I've had this done myself and uh, some fascinating things have been discovered. I've, uh, my, all of my great grandparents are British according to my paper genealogy. Um, yet I have 12 and percent of my DNA comes from Europe. So one of my great grandfathers, um, is looking like he's probably not my great grandfather. Oh, really? Yeah, somebody somebody snuck in there that had a European ancestry. Probably French. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Anyway, yeah. here. Uh, actually, you know, you've been uh, very kind to talk to us about your, your personal story. I know you came to huge public awareness in 2004 with the publication of your book, uh, Losing a Lost Tribe. I think that I was even peripherally aware of it and probably mainly through the responses to it in the um, – uh, the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies and the review of books on the Book of Mormon, Dan Peterson's old publication before he was removed from his editorship. But um, um, what I want to talk about with you, oh, I've got to also admit to you right now that I think I was spending a lot of time really trying not to think about that. Yeah. <laughs> not going too deeply, just listening to what the apologists had to say and accepting it at face value because these guys, I mean, they're smart guys. They know DNA, and so their conclusions are more acceptable to me because they align with what it is that I want to believe. Yeah. Can I just say something positive about one particular apologist? Yes. Yeah, John Tavednis was also – he was a very, very passionate defender of the Book of Mormon and, uh, but had absolutely no scientific um, background at all, so he was making all these crazy claims. And uh, he'd made a claim um, about the X lineage, uh, which is one of the lineages present in Native Americans. It's not found in Central America or, or where the uh, limited geography people wanted it to be uh, in, amongst the Maya. Um, so he claimed somewhere that they'd found the X lineage amongst the Maya um, and it hadn't. And he also made another claim that was false. And I corresponded with John and to his credit he responded and uh, when he was convinced that he's he had made a mistake he uh, got fair to ret- retract that part of the uh, a video they produced well good but, for him you know i had some communication yeah. with him 20 years ago by email and he was very kind and very very yeah. nice to me on a personal level so i have a positive attitude toward him too i'm glad to hear that he was willing to correct himself when correction was appropriate and when you called him on it um, but I got to bring up to you this haplotype X. Am I using the correct term? That's right. Yeah. Because yeah. this is very disappointing to me because forcing myself to wade through these articles in the journal of books or review of books on the book of Mormon, uh, yeah. probably by Hugo Paraguay, Paraguay, Perigo, uh, Perigo. Okay. It's all Greek to me, yeah. but by this gentleman, uh, the one thing <laughs> it's all this, um, uh, gibberish to me. It's all this gobbledygook. It's all this stuff that's very scientific and that I'm not really motivated enough to spend the time to understand. But the one thing, the one 
life preserver that was thrown out there that I could understand and that I did latch on to was haplotype X. And the claim that haplotype X is a haplotype, and you probably explain to our audience what that means. I think it's a little bigger than a strand. It's a little bit of a bigger group. But there was a haplotype with the genetic marker X, and that X does not come from Asia, it comes from the Middle East, and therefore there was scientific DNA evidence that supported the claim of the Book of Mormon at, that some people had come from the Middle East and their ancestors survived into the Native Americans today. You've heard about that. Yeah, no, um, so we talk, let's go back to what, what a haplotype is, is a collection of mitochondrial lineages that have share uh, the same mutations. So they're, so they're clearly related. So the more mutations you share with your mitochondrial DNA and another person, the more you share, that if they're the same, then, you, then you both, you, you're, very, you're more likely to be closely related. So the, the, very, the very first analysis that was done on Native Americans was amongst the first, if not the first work done on mitochondrial DNA. So they decided back then to, lay, to name these different uh, clusters of, haplo, uh, of mitochondrial DNAs that were similar. Uh, they clustered them into haplogroups. And they found that when they analyzed, I think that it was on the Maya they were working, they had about 27 individuals they isolated their mitochondrial DNA and sequenced it. And they found um, that they divided into four groups. And they just named each of those four groups uh, by different letters of the alphabet, and because they were the first, they named they just they were called the A, B, C, and D lineages. Um, they had also sequenced the DNA of some Asians, and they found the those four lineages amongst Asians. In subsequent research, a few years later, um, a, th a fifth um, haplogroup was found called the X lineage. And it's very rare. It's not found in Central or South America. It's only been found in North America. And it's more common in Eastern North America. Um, and it's so it's known as the X lineage, or more precisely, the X2A lineage. Now, the X2A lineage has never been found outside of North America. Now, an X lineage has been found in Asia, um, but it's distantly related to the X2A lineage that's found in Native Americans. So the X lineage, is a, it's a very rare lineage and it's quite possible that it's either extinct in Asia because the people that carried the X2A lineage all walked to America or all migrated to America or it's just that rare that they haven't found any individuals, they haven't tested enough individuals in Central Asia, where the ancestors of Native Americans came from. So, uh, but what we do know is it's it's very distantly related to other X lineages, Europe and in the Middle East. Middle East, you finally said it. That's what I was waiting for you to say. Yeah. So yeah, there's the connection, right, between this haplotype X, this X lineage between the Middle East and the Americas. Does yes. that show a link? That's what I was told. Does that show yeah. a link to prove the Book it's of Mormon? It's a link that's about 30,000 years old. Okay, so the X lineage was present in the Middle East um, because most of our ancestors 
have at one point in the past lived in the Middle East or passed through the Middle East. Um, but it's 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 almost a uh, I mean it's just a it's it's a family that's spread all across the X lineage is found all across Europe, the Middle East, and into Asia at just a very very low level. Um, so it's not surprising to scientists. It doesn't bother scientists at all that they haven't found it in in Asia yet because um, it's known that it's been in the Americas for a long long time. So it's uh, yeah, it's so effectively you know Central Asia was a was a sort of a melting pot. The Middle East and Central Asia are a melting pot of human populations. You know, thirty thousand years ago. Um, and they've spread to the east and they've spread to the west from Central Asia. So um, the, the X lineage probably arose in the Middle East or Central Asia, you know, 30 to, 30 to 40,000 years ago, um, and it's just moved around the world. It's a very old and very ancient um, group. But the X2A lineage, which is uh, the, the dominant X lineage found amongst American Indians um, is not found outside of um, outside of North Amer outside of America or North America, um, and is certainly not seen in uh, the Middle East or any other populations over there. Is it possible that persons from the Middle East carrying the X lineage migrated at approximately 600 BC or so? to the Americas and thereafter it mutated to the X2A lineage. And that accounts for why it's present in a different form in the Americas. No, that's not, that's highly unlikely because they've enough individuals have, uh, have been en enough individuals with the X lineage have been tested in the Americas and all of their, um, none of their X lineages are present in any Middle Eastern contemporary Middle Eastern populations. So, and it's you, based on the amount of um, mutations that are present in that family. So, you've got the X2A lineage haplogroup in the Americas, but not all of those people are the exact have exactly the same the X2A lineage. Over the years, extra mutations occur. So it's still classified as an X2A lineage, but it's got new mutations. Um, so it's basically what they call a sub-lineage or a sub-haplogroup. And that, as with time, because mutations accumulate with time, you can estimate the length of that time by how many mutations have accumulated. Mm -hmm. So if there's only been a short period of time, you'd only have very few new mutations. So when they've done this analysis, the X2A lineages in the Americas are just come out as just as old or have been in the Americas for just as long as the A, B, C, and D lineages that are present amongst American Indians. And how long ago is that? It's now looking like about um, they reached Beringia, or so that's a, the land bridge, around about 20 to about 20,000 years ago or earlier, maybe 20 to 5,000 years ago, and that they've moved into North America around about uh, 17 or 18,000 years ago. Okay, then. So, so, the for age of, 
So the age of the those five lineages, um, estimated by how many mu extra mutations have accumulated since they've been in the Americas, the age of those lineages is looks like around about the seventeen to nineteen thousand years mm. that they've been uh, separated from the Asian. So if I'm understanding you correctly, that's way too early for the Book of Mormon. Yeah, by about 15,000, 16,000 years. Right, because the Book of Mormon yeah. would have approximately 2,600 years ago, 600 BCE, yeah, yeah, these yeah. Middle Easterners traveling from the Middle East to the United States. And that's where we would presume from what the Book of Mormon has to say, that's what we presume, that's where this um, haplotype X comes from, or X2A as it is in the... Americas, right? Well, I've gone into they've they've got huge databases now with entire mitochondrial genome. The mitochondrial uh, DNA is has about sixteen and a half thousand uh, pieces of uh, bases of DNA in it. Okay, that's a that's a really small DNA molecule, um, and it's possible now. It's very easy to sequence the entire thing. So there are huge databases now that have have um, thousands and thousands of uh, mitochondrial DNAs in them, in it, and it has the entire sequence for each one. So you can go in there and you can compare the mitochondrial D X2A DNA of Native Americans with the closest relative in the Middle East, and the closest relative in the Middle East, if you compare that individual with the closest one in America, it has about 15 different mutations. Um, and and what does that mean time-wise? Time-wise, absolutely has to be around the ten to fifteen thousand years. Okay, so that's the problem. You know, I don't think this article that I read uh, by Farms mentioned that timing problem. Yeah, well, all of this work that we're talking about, this um, timing problem, uh, Hugo Perego, the guy who wrote the essay, published um, a bulk of the work on. So he's published work on this. So he, Hugo knows that all five of the lineages um, were in the Americas well before the Book of Mormon period. And he's he's not um, very early on, I think he was making claim, you know, we're not sure yet the data's not in, but no, he's pretty open about it now. So he's completely debunked. So you're saying Hugo Perego is the one who wrote the essay that the church put out on DNA yes. in the Book of Mormon? Yeah. Can we, can we turn, because it's not, of course, attributed to anybody, but he's no. the one who wrote it. You know that how? Uh, I think he's confirmed that. Oh, yeah, no, I've seen him write something to confirm that. Well, I guess there's a limited number of people who would be able to write that for the church, especially since you got Scott Woodward fired. <laughs> <laughs> no, only a prophet can do that. So. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, prophet, the prophet is the head of BYU. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to turn to, can we turn to the essay then, just for uh, a yeah. couple of insights from you? Yeah. Is that okay? Because I printed it off. I've read through it. You know, this is actually the one essay. Yes? Yes. Um, the essay does not um, directly address the, uh, the more recent genomic DNA research. So it's mostly focused on, because Perego is an expert on mitochondrial DNA, but hasn't done much on the whole genome research. Okay, the one that's even more conclusive, that there's no Middle Eastern yeah, presence yeah. like the Book of Mormon describes in the Americas. Yeah. Well, 
here's what I want to talk about. First off, I this is the one essay I had put off reading because honestly, you know, DNA, I deal with DNA as part of my work, but really yeah. it's a little bit scientific. And I put off, put it off until I was getting ready to interview you. And so I, I looked it up. I've read it a couple times now. And the first time I read it, I was actually surprised at how short it was. I had expected something much longer and much more, um, I don't know, impressive. How short, how short was the one you read? Well, this one is one, as, as it's printed off, one, two, yeah. three, four, hang on, five, uh, five okay, and a so half pages. Full, yeah, you got the full thing. It's, um, I haven't looked at it closely in a while, so it's, uh, it's one of those things with these essays, they change over time. Right. And uh, yes, it does change over time. And this one may or may not have, I don't know. It's hard to keep track because they don't exactly list the, the changes that they've made or, or they're not really upfront about their, um, their updates. So it's yeah. hard to tell unless people are actually watching very carefully. But I did want to talk about a number of the things in this essay that they yeah. use to justify uh, the Book of Mormon is still being historical in spite of what DNA studies have shown. The first thing that I notice is this, is that what they, what they apparently say, and I'll read a, a quote from it here in a second, is that, hey, look, there are non-Mormons who try to use DNA to prove the Book of Mormon is not true. And there are also Mormons who try to use DNA to show that the Book of Mormon is true. And they're both wrong. Neither one of them can do that because DNA science is not sufficient to prove either one of those propositions. And therefore, hey, everybody, let's just call it a draw, okay? <laughs> did, you read, did you read that in the essay? Yeah, I mean, the essay is, um, it's, it's basically they're defending the claim that, uh, yeah, you, 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 can't, you can't prove a negative. So um, it's um, effectively there finding all of the excuses for not being able to detect a, a population. So they use things um, like, you know, they mentioned the founding effect and... Uh, there are three things I want to talk to you about. Founder yeah. effect, okay? And I read through this. I will give credit to Hugo. He wrote it uh, dumb enough that at least I could understand what it was he was saying, okay? I can't vouch I, for the accuracy. He, English isn't his first language, so he would have probably for provided the first draft and there was an awful lot of work that would have gone in. They would have had big committees on this. They would have polished it. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's written to defend the, the obvious problem that they can't find. And I think they even acknowledge in the essay that they, they haven't been able, you know, nobody has conclusively found Lehi's DNA and you can't, um, and the technology can't do that. But I would argue that with the, the whole genome technology, that's not the case. Um, we can talk about the whole genome stuff later on, but uh, yeah, it's it's th using things like um, basically their molecular excuses for the disappearance of DNA. So they're effectively arguing that Lehi's DNA had, uh, just didn't fare very well in the Middle East and, and has gone extinct. Right. They have a number of excuses. And by the way, this is one of the problems that I had. I was an apologist for at least a decade. And the problem that I have with apologetics is not simply that um, sometimes they don't have the evidence that they need to support their claims. It's that time after time after time after time, they have to retreat 
and keep arguing, not that the evidence supports us, but hey, it doesn't necessarily prove that we're wrong because we can come up with all these excuses for why the straightforward understanding of the evidence means something else or doesn't necessarily affect our belief in the Book of Mormon. And one of the things they say here at the very beginning, this is before we get to Founder Effect, I'm sorry, I wanted to read this too, because they're busy trying to draw the target as small as possible on Lehi and company. And here's what they say. This is, um, the Book of Mormon itself, however, does not claim that the peoples it describes were either the predominant or the, or the exclusive inhabitants of the lands they occupied. Now, that's kind of news to me because when I read the Book of Mormon through, uh, it seemed to me that it was pretty clear that this land was reserved exclusively for those that the Lord would bring to it. And the Book of Mormon presents itself. I mean, it doesn't talk about anybody else being present, right? It doesn't talk about, oh, we went over here and we encountered these people. Actually, let me back up and say it does. And maybe that's more interesting because it's not like it just has this one group. It does talk about encountering other groups. It talks about when the Nephites uh, encounter the uh, the Mulekites, right? Other Middle Eastern groups. <laughs> yes, other Middle Eastern groups. And it talks about uh, something about the Jaredites, or at least they find one Jaredite alive, and an earlier group finds a battlefield and all these swords and things and the 24 gold plates. But that's Jaredites. Uh, but leaving it to these people, it's interesting to me that it does talk about them encountering another group of Middle Eastern people who came from the Middle East with the Mulekites, but it never talks about anybody else, them counting, encountering any, anybody else. And yet the argument now that has to be made in this essay, in light of the evidence, seems to be that there were all these populations around them that they interacted with, encountered with, in fact, intermarried with and had children with. Yep. And yet, for some reason, they never get mentioned in the Book of Mormon. Yeah. That's one thing that's problematic. And here's how they put it. Um, they say, this is the next sentence. In fact, cultural and demographic clues in its text, that's the Book of Mormon's text, hint at the presence of other groups. Now, when I was a, an apologist, I mean, I know exactly what they're talking about those. here. What? I missed all of those hints when I was reading the Book of Mormon seven times. Well, here's the deal, okay. Um the question is whether these are hints at other groups or whether they are just problems with the narrative. And one of the problems when it says demographic clues, what it's talking about is at the end of Jacob and before Mosiah and Alma show up on the scene, we have all those little tiny books in the Book yeah. of Mormon. And one of the problems there is that the populations that are recorded in the Book of Mormon do not appear to be reasonable. In other words, they're way too huge. They grew way too fast for a small group being implanted from another location and either that's a problem for the book of mormon and it wasn't written very carefully taking that into account or now we can use it as an evidence or a hint that there were other populations present let me give you an example from jacob chapter two right jacob chapter two he's excoriating the nephites about practicing plural marriage of all things remember that and here yeah. you got Jacob, who's the brother of Nephi, who's the son of Lehi, who came over, and you're going, where did all these women come from? Yeah. <laughs> so that's either a problem with the narrative, or this for them becomes a hint that there were other populations present because that's who they intermarried with. And so these are the kinds of things they're talking about. Also, Sherem and Jacob chapter 7, it's all coming back to me now. 
Remember Sherem, one of the, I think it's the first Antichrist in the Book of Mormon. And here comes Sherem walking up to Jacob. Once again, the brother of Nephi, although Nephi has now passed away and Jacob's taken over. He's still his brother. And we're still, what, two generations in with Lehi being the first generation and Jacob being the second generation of this group. And all of a sudden, here comes this dude named Sherem walking up. And it's like he appears on the scene and he's not part of their group. But he shows up and he's arguing with Sherem about doctrinal, excuse me, with Jacob about doctrinal matters, and he can speak their language. Yeah. So it's all these things that that may be clumsy narrative features of the Book of Mormon, but have been latched onto as hints of other populations that existed. Yeah. Well, the, the, you can see exactly what the apologists are doing. They've they have their fixed conclusion about what they need the Book of Mormon to say. They read through it. They ignore the obvious, what it says. They don't, they don't mention that, and they just focus on anything. And they're just obvious problems with the um, creation or the invention of a, of a historical, a book that's going to claim to be historical. And I think that's one of the problems with the essay. Sure, they're, they're using, you can argue, yes, that some, you know, it's hard to find the DNA and it might have disappeared and you can use all of these fancy um, um, you know, bottleneck, bottleneck effect and founder effect. Um, but the reality is that the text says one, you know, something that has been interpreted by all of the prophets um, for ever since the church was founded. Um, why should we then accept what apologists are saying? These are people who are not authorized to talk or interpret scripture on behalf of the prophets. So the behind that essay is the, the biggest, you know, the, the essay that really needs to be written by the church is, okay, the DNA says we can't find them. Um, why can't we find them? Why, let's do an essay on the uh, limited geography. Try and convert the limited geography theory into a document that the ordinary members of the church will understand and appreciate. Um, but they, I suspect that that's not something that's going to be written. Right. I think the leaders of the church officially have retreated to the position that they're not going to say where it was in the Americas yeah. that the Book of yeah. Mormon took place, but they are going to hold fast to the position that it did happen somewhere in the Americas. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's well, go on to, be, this. Uh, to yes. be more. No, sorry, to be more specific about where they're, proposing this happened, um, the, the latest position from the farms and BYU apologists, this is John Sorensen, Peterson, mentally all that crowd, is that uh, Lehi landed um, on the coast of Guatemala and then within 30 or 40 years after their arrival, Nephi uh, took their family into the wilderness and they... Um, then took over the leadership of the city that was um, a city called Kamenalhuyu, which is the city that lies underneath Guatemala City, um, and then they took leadership of that. I mean, it's just laughable. It's just It just becomes ludicrous when you're... Because, I mean, John Sorensen's convinced that it was the technology that Lehi brought to the Americas that, that, in, that really kicked off the Mayan civilization in Central America, and that's just complete. That's just complete nonsense. the The thing that really kicked off the Mayan civilization was the the breeding of maize. 
over thousands of years because it enabled them to feed very large populations. Their populations grew dramatically. Suddenly they went from, you know, isolated villages all over the place to major cities because they just had to get organised into cities because their population was so large. Um, yes, and then it's the... Just, uh, it's, it's really quite insulting to Mayans and to Indigenous Americans to claim that their civilizations benefited from a Middle Eastern group coming in two and a half thousand years ago. Mm. That is an interesting way of looking at it. I'm usually yeah. focused more on the, the fact that the Isthmus of Panama now no longer works. So it has to become the Isthmus of Tehuantepec. Yes. And then we've got, like, yeah, which it seems a little bit too wide for my, my, my tastes. You know what I mean? But yeah. still, it's, it's, you got to have a narrow neck. If you're going to have a location for the Book of Mormon anywhere, it's got to have that narrow neck. It's got to have that land south. It's got to have that land north. Even though if it's the Isthmus of Tehuantepec, it ends up sort of not being north and south. It's sort of yeah. more north, uh, east, and southwest. But they have an answer for that as well, yeah. as you know. And we should mention while we're talking about the Mayans that uh, if there's any native group that's been had their DNA studied the most, it's probably the Mayans. So mitochondrial DNA studies, about 633 Mayans have been tested. So these are in studies where they've uh, tried to exclude individuals that have a European ancestry. Uh, and out of those 633, they found I think it was 630 had an Asian mitochondrial DNA. They found one European and a couple of African um, mitochondrial DNA lineages. So one out of 633 was European, which is the only possible link. You know, that's the closest group to the Middle East. But they've, whole, they've also done whole genome studies on whole populations throughout uh, the Americas, including the Maya. So the thousands of individuals where they've, they've, they've screened every individual with about half a million markers. So just imagine, you know, an Ancestry.com genomic analysis on 6,500 South Americans to determine where their ancestors came from. And so they were focusing in on Latin Americans. So these are people that had, had some sort of European ancestry. That's, again, that's, that's post-Columbus though, right? That's post, after Columbus. Post-Columbus, yeah. And they, can't, they can find... Uh, Middle Eastern DNA, and they can find Portuguese DNA and Spanish DNA, and all sorts. It's very easy with the genome to determine what portions of the DNA come from different regions of Europe. And uh, in all cases, they've found that. Um, I mean, there are obviously uh, there were Jews amongst the people that came to the Americas. Um, they have found smatterings of Jewish DNA all throughout South America and uh, Central America. Um, at very low frequency, but when they they're able to determine with the whole genome analysis where in the Ameri where sorry the timing as well. You know how we we're talking about with mitochondrial DNA, they can they can tell with the genome how long ago the European DNA entered the uh, the indigenous populations of the Americas, and it aligns perfectly with the the historical record. So even the Jewish DNA that has been found in the Americas, arrived after Columbus. They can tell that from the, the DNA analysis. Okay. You know, I know that you must be familiar with the apologetic material, and I have not read it in a long time, but I do remember reading where somebody was saying that even though the Mayans have the right timeline for 
the Book of Mormon Nephites, the right, I'll put that in quotation marks, yeah. location for Book of Mormon Nephites. Yet a point was attempted to be made that the Nephites were not the Mayans. They were just a group that was really like close to the Mayans and I guess lived next door to the Mayans. Uh, it never was really clear about that, but it seemed like they wanted to draw this distinction. They wanted to have all the benefits of being Mayans with time and yeah. place and technology, but they didn't want to actually be the Mayans themselves. Are you familiar with that? And do you know why that might be? Oh, I haven't. I'm not too familiar with that one, but I mean, the, the Mayan influence was all the way through cent, uh, southern Mexico, Yucatan Peninsula, Guatemala, all the yeah, way the, through. They're all interconnected. They're all, they're, they're, you know, they were sharing building techniques, they're growing the same plants. That's as the Nephites proceeded northward and up into the land yeah. northward into they're southern all, Mexico. They're all interconnected. The, the Mayan the sphere of influence was very large. The claim that they're just sort of this separate little thing that was, um, I mean, they, would, they were there for a thousand years. Their DNA would have entered surrounding populations over the years and would be easily detectable these days in the genome. Because in the genome, they've, they've found um, other surprises amongst American Indians. They've found other ancestors going back a lot further than a couple of thousand years ago. They've even found there is DNA evidence of Austrian, Australasian DNA in uh, central uh, South, South America. From thousands of years ago? Um, well, I, I suspect it's from 30,000 years ago. So very recently they discovered evidence of human occupation of caves in Mexico that's been carbon dated to 30,000 years ago. And they had very ancient, very primitive stone spear points that's much more primitive than the Clovis spear points that Americans are very familiar with. So it's much more primitive to that, and that's been found in Mexico. Um, so that there seems to be evidence that Australasians, a group of Australasians got into the Americas soon after Australia was colonised, but then you've had this massive Asian population which has moved in around about 20,000 years ago and then they've absorbed this population as they've gone, as they've moved into the Americas. That's, that that's not a very solid theory at this stage, but there is growing evidence that that seems to be what uh, might have occurred early on. So there's, but there is clear evidence of Australasian DNA amongst very, this is only small amounts of this. So between, ze, you know, zero and point, uh, between zero and two percent of the DNA of some some tribes in South America have Australasian DNA. Um, but they've also found Neanderthal DNA, very small fractions, less than one percent, point two percent, I think it is, of Neanderthal DNA in American Indians, and a third. Uh, ancestral group called Denisovans. So there's evidence of Denisovan DNA in Asian populations and very small amounts of Denisovan DNA is present, has been found in um, American Indian populations. Well, so, give it, yeah, I was going to so ask a follow-up. We can find these signs of, tiny signs of ancestral groups from between, you know, 20 and 30,000 years ago. We can find, we can see that in... Um, American Indian populations 
but absolutely nothing from the Middle East in these ancient populations, in, the, in, in these ancient DNA studies. I mean, scientists, it, it, I think, you know, you do reach a point where, you know, you do hear this argument, you know, oh, the scientists are not, they're excluding, they're trying to avoid finding, they've got this agenda, they don't want to find Middle Eastern DNA because it might support the Mormons or whatever. You, you do get to the point where, you know, what possible motive would scientists have for not finding it? Can you imagine if you're a scientist working in this field, if there was Middle Eastern DNA present and you found it, you would, you'd be rushing to publish it because it would be such a dramatic discovery. So, Simon, let me put on my apologist hat and ask you this question, which I think begs to be asked. Given the fact that this is a developing field, and even recently, as you said, there's evidence which is not solid yet, but it's looking promising about the Australasian DNA in the ancient Americas, even from 20 to 30,000 years ago. Is it possible that future discoveries might locate Middle Eastern DNA in Book of Mormon times among the American peoples? Well, that question is based on lots of assumptions. Uh, but so far, we've tested 16,500 mitochondrial genomes have been sequenced of American Indians. They can't find Middle Eastern DNA there. Um, probably close to seven to 8,000 whole genomes of American Indians have been sequenced. So it's a vanishingly small, vanishingly small or invisible presence. So you're telling me there's a chance. Yeah, there's a chance. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, well, good. I'm glad we established that much. They go back to church. <laughs> well, it's sort of like the God of the Gaps, except this is just transported over oh, to the Book of Mormon. It's the yeah. Lamanites of the Gaps. Yeah. Uh, but, it, you know, it's um, there are encouraging signs that this apologetic nonsense will um, will reach an end. I mean, Greg Prince is a very well-regarded um, LDS scholar. Um, just published an article in the Salt Lake Tribune that I can't read because I haven't subscribed. But um, he he now acknowledges that uh, the Book of Mormon was written in the 19th century. So it's a fabricated history. So the book's full of good things, but it's a fabricated history. So that's, you know, that's Greg Prince. So he's a very widely respected academic. And that's you know, and that's I think that's probably influenced. He's very familiar with DNA, um, and I'm sure the DNA evidence is probably. He mentioned that the DNA evidence has is 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 pretty compelling. Well, going back to this essay, and I do want to get back to these these issues yeah. so that you can address them squarely. We first off talked about how the Book of Mormon has been presented as being something by the leaders of the church and by Joseph Smith himself, who should know as being a history that encompasses all of North and South America, the geography, and it seems to describe exactly that sort of thing. And yet, over time now, it has become reduced and reduced and reduced to a small group who come over and almost immediately are subsumed by these much larger indigenous populations to the point where their DNA is not able to be found now uh, with science. And one of the three things that they talk about, they talk about um, founder effect, they talk about population bottleneck and genetic drift. And even though the last two of those are somewhat similar, let's talk a little bit about the founder effect. And the way that I talk about the founder effect or the way I understand it is that basically the argument is, hey, 
we don't even know what Lehi's DNA looked like. So how would we know it if we found it? Is that your understanding of it? It's a little different to that. Um, but, yeah, I've heard that argument. We don't know what Lehi's DNA looks like. We do. Um, if, he, if he came from the Middle East, it would look Middle Eastern um, very clearly. And Middle Eastern DNA is very easy to detect now with genomic studies. Uh, but the founder effect is, <coughs> excuse me, if you imagine a small group of people leaving a population, moving into a new area and then growing into a large population, uh, because they're carrying a small subset of the DNA from the previous population, it will magnify differences. In the, so the, the new population will not look identical to the to the old population. So there'll be subtle changes and there'll be changes in the frequency of particular, if we think about mitochondrial lineages, there'll be changes in the frequency of each of the, of the haplogroups. For example, the A, B, C and D lineages that are found in American Indians occur at roughly, you know, between 30 and between 20 and 30%. Um, the X lineage is only a couple of percent. Well, in, if you look at Asia, uh, the the A, B, C, and D lineages are, are at much lower frequencies in America, sorry, in Asia, and the X lineage, um, vanishingly small frequencies. So you can see the subtle changes in the frequencies there. So that's sort of the, the founder effect. Then genetic drift is basically over time, there are just sort of random changes in the frequency of particular lineage. So they're not they're not completely separate, these two ideas, uh, these two principles, founder effect and genetic drift. So even once the population, the new population establishes, you'll get changes in the frequency of, of the uh, lineages over time. So, for example, when they first arrived in the Americas, um, the A lineage might have been there at 50% of the population, but now it might be down to 23% or something like that, and that would be sort of a genetic drift type thing. And the so so the third one you mentioned um, is a population bottleneck. That has to do with catastrophic incidents, right? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So the, the, their argument there is that basically that yeah, Lehigh DNA was unlucky. So it, uh, yeah, you have a big battle, and it was Lehigh DNA got um, got wiped out, and and uh, even though the Book of Mormon talks about the Lamanites blossoming as a rose and and surviving um, well into the to our time period. Well, right. And so basically, they're they're all um, fancy genetic excuses for uh, not being able to find their DNA. So it would be accurate to say that there's just as much evidence. Well, you the the results that we're seeing among in Native American studies today uh, are. There would be no difference for the they the there's a non-existent population. You would see the same evidence that we're seeing today. So there's just we're not seeing anything that uh, suggests that a Middle Eastern population reached the Americas in pre-Columbian time. Right, and all they end up being, I see them as excuses for why there's no evidence to support the Book of Mormon. Yeah. Yeah. There's no evidence of Middle Eastern DNA, and therefore we'll come up with these excuses as to why there's no Middle yeah. Eastern DNA. And you raise an interesting point about the population bottleneck, because they actually do cite to that final cataclysmic battle 
Yeah. In addition to the catastrophic war at the end of the Book of Mormon, then it talks about the European conquest of the Americas in the 15th and 16th centuries. Um, But you raise a very good point is that even if all the Nephites were killed off, there's still all the Lamanites who weren't, and they all jointly descend from Lehi. Hmm. Well, you know, there is evidence that partially addresses that. um, I think it's close to 2,000. I mentioned earlier that it's about 16,000 Indigenous Americans have had their mitochondrial DNA sequenced. Mm -hmm. Of those, about 2,000 of those studies have been done on ancient remains. Um, so these are these are individuals that lived uh, before Columbus, um, and so these are individuals that lived prior to the, you know, the you know smallpox epidemics and the decimation that came after Columbus arrived. And in those individuals, they don't find any evidence of European DNA. They just find all Asian DNA from from pre pre Columbus times. So. So, excuse me. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm paying attention. Sorry, I was, I was thinking asleep. you were going to finish that off with an additional point, and then you didn't. Um, yeah, so what, what I understand they're talking about bottleneck and about uh, the genetic drift and the founder effect is that these are absolutely scientifically recognized and understood principles as they might apply to DNA. But really, they yeah. all are marshaled in an effort to explain why it is that the science does not support the Book of Mormon. Yeah. And this is the same thing I see with the book of Abraham and the papyrus, right? Well, the book of Abraham, we can now translate the Egyptian. The recovered papyrus doesn't have the book of Abraham on it, even though we have an awful lot there. We've even got facsimile one, and we have the writing right next to it, from which it appears from the Abraham Egyptian papers that that's what was being translated. And yet, because we don't have it there on the papyrus, then we have to go to the fallback position, which is, well, maybe it's on the papyrus that wasn't recovered. Yeah. yeah. And it's always this retreat from what we know to what we don't know. And our faith rests on what we don't know because science keeps finding out the stuff that contradicts what we believe. Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly the same. It's the same enterprise. It's, <laughs> it's the apologetic enterprise. Um, it's yeah. I, I, uh, I take my hat off to the uh, community of Christ because they uh, recognized, uh, you know, the pointlessness of this apologetics uh, 20 or 30, oh, probably 30 years ago, and they've just got a very healthy attitude to this. They just don't, you don't have to believe the historicity to be a member of their church. It's just, they just leave it, let it go. Can I just read you this this paragraph from the conclusion now of this essay? Yeah. And then we'll move on to uh, Rodney Meldrum, Meldrum, excuse yeah. me. Yeah. Uh, Much as critics and defenders of the Book of Mormon would like to use DNA studies to support their views, the evidence is simply inconclusive. This is where I hear them saying, hey, let's just call it a draw because nobody can prove their side using the evidence. Nothing is known about the DNA. Well, it's kind of like if if you've got uh, slingshots in your army and you're opposing another army with nuclear weapons and you say, hey, we're both (laughs) armed. Nothing good is going to come from a battle. Why don't we just put our weapons down and (laughs) slowly walk away? Okay, let's just call it a truce, all right? That's what yeah. I hear them saying. Is that is that totally wrong, that analogy? Uh, I don't think they would agree that that's what they're saying. Um, <laughs> I mean, no, no, I, I they would not them. agree. But yeah, is, that, is that your take on it, too? Is it similar to what I, I said? Yeah, yeah. Okay, they say nothing is yeah. known about, oh, I'm sorry, nothing is known about the DNA of Book of Mormon peoples. That's where, they're, that's where they're saying, we don't know what uh, Lehi's DNA looked like, except obviously he came from the Middle East. 
So I think what they're doing is they're, they're going into this technicality. We don't know exactly what his DNA looked like. And therefore, it could look like anything in the world when obviously, no, there's a lot of things that it wouldn't look like. It would look like somebody who came from the Middle East, as the Book of Mormon shows him to be. Yeah, now, Hugo Prego knows very well that the, uh, all of the, those lineages, the five lineages present in American Indians, were there 19,000 years ago. The writer of the LDS essay knows um, those are not Middle Eastern, derived from the Middle East in, Book of Mormon, in the Book of Mormon period. So it's it's basically an ambition that yes we there is no that's the that's the church's way of saying we haven't found Lehi's DNA yet. Mm. And then it goes on and it synopsizes what we talked about before. Even if such information were known, processes such as population bottleneck, genetic drift, and post-Columbian immigration from West Eurasia make it unlikely. And here's what I want to focus on for you to comment on make it unlikely that their DNA could be detected today. That mm. sounds a bit extreme. Yeah. They're actually see. arguing that the Book of Mormon has Middle Eastern people coming to the Americas and describes yeah. their proliferation in civilizations over a thousand years before half of them are destroyed and the other half continue to live until our day. But they yeah. say that these things that they've talked about in this essay make it unlikely that Lehi's DNA could be detected today or that Middle Eastern DNA could be detected today. Do you agree with that? Well, I think, the, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, this, the essay was written primarily uh, from, a, from a mitochondrial DNA perspective. Um, and, yeah, they're arguing that uh, it, um, it's, it's, yeah, the, that the DNA has gone to extinction using all of these fancy um, population genetics terms. Um, it's just very, very unlucky DNA. Let me rephrase the question because you say unlucky. Yeah. I'm going to rephrase this question for you. Yeah. If the Book of Mormon is historical and it does describe the Middle Easterners coming to the, uh, I almost said the United States. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm sure they, well, it's New York for crying out loud. That's where the Hill Camorra yeah, so is. So you're a Heartlander at heart. <laughs> <laughs> to the Americas, okay. Coming yeah. to the Americas and proliferating the way they did as described in the Book of Mormon. Even taking yeah. into account these different ideas that they put forward, do you think it would be unlikely that Middle Eastern DNA would be found today? No, I mean, even, even the limited geography one, the idea from BYU where they talk about them taking over Middle Eastern populations, the Mayan populations, and then ruling them for a thousand years, DNA would pick that up easily. And I have to go back to your, your mention yeah. about the Austral-Asian DNA from 30,000 yeah. years ago. It they would can seem pick up tiny traces of that. They can pick up tiny fractions of 1%. Yeah, to me, this, this strikes me as... I'm so sorry. I'm talking to you mm -hmm. from the other side of the world, and I apologize. I was talking at the same time. But this strikes me as the most deceptive part of this essay, where it says yeah. that it's unlikely that Middle Eastern Book of Mormon DNA would be able to be detected today. I think that sounds false. No, this is complete nonsense. It's, it's easy. They, they, can, they can detect diff, uh, DNA from different populations in the Middle East. The whole genome studies these days, it's very, there, are, there are thousands of markers that are unique to Middle Eastern populations and unique to Jewish populations and unique to... English populations. You can even 
using genomic DNA, you can even distinguish somebody in the UK that comes from Cornwall from somebody that comes from Norfolk using DNA because there are unique mutations in Cornwall that don't come up, are not seen as often in, in Norfolk populations. So if you can distinguish between those populations, detecting Middle Eastern DNA in American Indians would be a piece of cake. It's a piece of cake. And they have already done it. They've, they can pick up tiny traces of uh, post-Columbus DNA in American Indians. They can, they can distinguish Portuguese from Spanish, German, English, Jewish. And they've found very, very tiny traces by focusing in on populations in the Americas, Latin American population. So these are, they're not looking at, when they looked at six and a half thousand uh, Latin Americans, they're not looking at indigenous people that have as little European ancestry as possible. They're focusing in on people that have European ancestry. Even when they focus in on those people, they find tiny traces of Middle Eastern and Sephardic DNA across all populations in South America and Central America and even in North America, but they can tell easily when that DNA arrived. Um, and it's, it's by, analyze, by looking at how the, this is something we haven't talked about previously, um, when, when we need to talk about the process of DNA recombination. So when you pass your chromosomes to your children, when parents pass their chromosomes to their children, uh, your children will each inherit You've got 22 chromosomes, and then you've got the sex chromosomes, the X and Y. For each one of those chromosomes, they'll have your children will have one from a copy from each of their parents. So your children will have, if we focus on chromosome one, they'll have the, the chromosome one from you and from your wife. But that chromosome that you pass to your children will not be, will be a mixture of your parents' chromosomes. And the reason for that is a process called recombination. So when you, uh, before you pass, the, the chromosome that you pass onto your children has been recombined. It's a recombination of your parental chromosomes. Now that process occurs in every generation. And what happens is every generation, the lengths of chromosomes, so if you consider a Native American, if they have a European come into their family tree, in every generation, the, the, the lengths of their chromosomes that are Native American and European will become shorter and shorter and shorter because of recombination. And scientists very early on picked up on the fact that they can determine how long ago, they can estimate how long ago DNA, that foreign DNA, say, for example, European DNA entered into a Native American population. They can estimate when it arrived. So they've even been able to compare when Spanish DNA and Portuguese DNA arrived in South Americans with when Middle Eastern DNA arrived in these same populations. And it's 10 generations ago. It's exactly the same for both groups. So the, the technology is just absolutely amazing these days. It can determine, it can it, it can identify very tiny fractions of DNA that comes from ancient populations or um, admixing populations, say the Portuguese and Spanish, but it also can determine how long ago it came in. And they've even they've done this so they can, when they looked at the Italian DNA, 
in South Americans and Europe and uh, English DNA, it arrived about three or four generations later than the Spanish and Portuguese DNA. I should add that the reason that uh, they're picking up Middle Eastern DNA is that it's Middle Eastern DNA that had reached the, um, Spain and Portugal before Columbus. So Jews have been leaving the Middle East over many, many centuries. So, um, And there is a group of Jews called the Conversos that are found in Spain. And these are Jews, because they were so heavily persecuted when they reached Spain, they converted to Christianity. And they're the, it's the Conversos that brought the, uh, the, the Middle Eastern DNA and the Jewish DNA into the Americas. Mm, okay. So it came on the same boats. Well, Spanish, what do you call them? Spanish. Uh, Galleons? Galleons, that's the word. Yeah. I got it. Yay. And here's this quote that it uses in the essay. This is the last reference to the essay I'm going to give you because it strikes me as so amazing. But it quotes Elder Oaks. And it says, after it's saying that it's unlikely that their DNA could be detected today, it says, as Elder Dallin H. Oaks of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles observed, it is our position that secular evidence can neither prove nor disprove the authenticity of the Book of Mormon. So they want to give a quote to a general authority there who's not going to say much except for the astounding, astounding statement to me as I look at it, that a book that claims to be a historical record of the Americas and of its peoples coming from the Middle East and becoming a huge population over a thousand years before half of them get killed off, that he is actually going to say that secular evidence cannot prove the Book of Mormon. I would think that the Book of Mormon presents a scenario where secular evidence would be extremely likely to prove it true, yeah. if indeed it were true. What are your thoughts? Oh, well, then why are they doing all this apologetics? Why Why be bothered? Why? I mean, it, I like to, you know, if imagine for a moment that the Book of Mormon, this, this claim that secular evidence means nothing. Imagine if the Book of Mormon was a 50-page pamphlet. Okay? It just told the same story, but it was 50 pages long. And it was much easier to believe that somebody wrote it. That's 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 a case where um, the physical evidence of it being such a short book uh, would clearly would clearly make it harder to believe that it was uh, divinely inspired. But it's the fact that it's five hundred and twenty pages makes it an awful lot more believable. So that's a that's a secular evidence. That's a that's a physical evidence that uh, clearly raises questions. Would raise questions about a, about the book. Um, but the yeah, it's all. It, I mean, I can I can understand why Elder Oaks is retru- is retreating to that position. Um, but the 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 truth of the matter is that the Book of Mormon does make very very clear claims that are that can be interrogated in, with scientific evidence and the tools of science uh, just ex- have just become extremely powerful when it comes to the ancestry of um, indigenous americans and polynesians by the way it does occur to me that elder oaks is basically doing the same thing about it's a draw 
in this yeah. quote. You know, secular evidence can't prove it. It can't disprove it. We're not going to try and use it to prove it, folks. So you can stop trying to disprove it using the secular evidence, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and we'll all get along just fine as long as we all stop using that, that darn secular evidence. Yeah. We have got about 40 yeah. minutes left, and I want to talk about your recent endeavors because you're still very much into this DNA subject related to the Americas and the ancient Americas. And now, now there's the, um, oh, the, the antithesis group to the limited geography theorists who hold to what uh, Joseph Smith said and believe that the Book of Mormon actually did take place, at least in North America. I'm not sure how they feel about South America. Maybe they're still in all the Americas. I just hear them talking about New York and the Palmyra, excuse me, the Palmyra, um, uh, the Hill Cumorah. Yeah that Joseph Smith apparently thought was the Hill Cumora and where he got the plates from that Moroni gave to him. But now, first off, I want to get to Kennewick man, but before that, can you, can you describe uh, who these, these are the Heartlanders, correct? Yeah. The Heartland theory. And what is it that they, do they believe basically what uh, the Joseph Smith said, which is that the book of Mormon takes place in all of the Americas? Yeah. I mean, they, they, um, they have an awful lot of um, evidence, to, you know, uh, religious evidence, claims of Joseph Smith, the things that Joseph Smith said, and uh, to support their view. But it, it essentially what it is is uh, creationist fundamentalism. So these, these people believe that the earth is 7,000 years old, that there was a global flood, um, and the world was, yeah, the that the Book of Mormon is literally true. And so they interpret the uh, DNA evidence uh, to support that, that claim. Okay. So, you know, I should add that these, none of these are scientifically trained. So Rodney Meldrum has no scientific training. Um, right. Ro Rodney Meldrum yeah. is an individual who's LDS who ends up being the, at yeah. the forefront of this movement, which is basically, yeah. I think, as a response to the limited geography theorists and trying to reclaim that position that was originally maintained by the early church. Mm. And can you tell the audience a little bit about Rodney Meldrum, who he is, what he does? And I understand he's gained quite a following. Yeah, he's, um, well, he gets, he's very, very appealing to, I, I guess, an elderly, the older generation of Mormons who were, um, raised with the sort of hemispheric view of the Book of Mormon. Um, and so he's, um, that's what he defends. Um, we go back quite a long way, actually. Uh, I corresponded with Rodney Meldrum very early on in his career um, because the X-lineage DNA evidence, even back then, was quite clear that it, um, the one that the X-lineage that Native Americans carried wasn't closely related to Middle Eastern X-lineages. So he... But he latched on to the X lineage very early on. Now, the, the reason that we have Rodney Meldrum is that he was so shocked by the BYU apologetics so he, that he then launched his own career. And so he, he uh, was shocked that they were conceding so much territory very early on. Um, and as soon as he saw that, the X lineage was also found in the Middle East and it's been found in Europe and everywhere else in Asia. And as soon as he saw that, he then 
and I dived into the research. And once you've got a fixed conclusion in your brain that the X lineage is from the Middle East and it came in via Lehi, uh, and you go in there looking for evidence that supports your conclusion and you ignore everything else that doesn't support your conclusion, um, you can just come up with amazing uh, theories. But it's it's the entire the entire heartland thing is just pseudoscience. Um, so it's it does so. They as I mentioned earlier, they're just twisting the science to fit with their uh, fixed conclusions. And back in the 1990s, there was a remarkable discovery that was made. It hit the news. I heard about it. Of course, I live in Washington State, and it had to do with a find that was made over in Kennewick, Washington. Kennewick is the name of a city in the south. Eastern section of Washington state. And can you tell the audience a little bit about that? Yeah. um, If ever there was devastating evidence for a particular, for the heartlanders, um, you couldn't have designed more devastating evidence um, because Kennewick man, um, turns out the Kennewick man has the X2A lineage. But let me tell you the story of Kennewick man because it's really quite interesting. Um, so as you mentioned, his bones were washed out of the banks of the Columbia River in Kennewick in 1996, I think it was. Um, it, this, the, uh, it was very controversial at the time because the, um, there was a, a very protracted legal battle over getting access to the, the bones of Kennewick Man. Um, scientists eventually won the case and they were able to do an awful lot of analysis on Kennewick Man, but his bones have now been returned to the Indigenous groups and reburied in a secret location. But um, there's overwhelming evidence on a number of fronts that Kennewick Man was buried uh, about 9,000 years ago. Can we back so, up to the discovery for just a second? Because I yeah. remember this vividly. Because as an active faithful Mormon, here we've got Kennewick Man being discovered. And I can't remember if it was unearthed by like the Corps of Engineers or something, a government group. And yeah, there was that big uh, battle because it was on uh, Native American land and they claimed him and the government wanted him to do research, all that kind of stuff. But this was, this yeah. is what the reports were, okay? This is a white guy. This is the skeleton and the bones of yeah. a white guy in America, and who wouldn't want to hear that more than a faithful, devout Mormon? This is obviously a Nephite, right? This is <laughs> this is one of the white guys. This is one of the good guys that we read about in the Book of Mormon. And it was yeah. so exciting and so frustrating that there was this legal battle going on because we wanted the research to be done, the tests to be done, so they could prove the Book of Mormon was yeah. true. And what you're saying is that eventually that, that research was done, but then... Yeah. Well, is he a white guy? I'm sorry, I, I white guy is the wrong way to put it, probably. But yeah, no, no, you no, you're exactly right. There was a, a very, very contentious debate. Um, now, I think part of the reason was some of the statements of the early scientists that looked at it, the, the skeleton. Now, um, the skeleton was washed out of the banks, and so the, it was lying along the banks of the, the river. The forensic examiners were called in and they retrieved all of the bones and some of those were scientists who studied ancient skeletons. And, yeah, the skeleton did... And then there was a battle with the Army Corps of Engineers. But the the skeleton looked different in appearance to contemporary American Indians. Um, It turns out that's extremely common. All of the earliest skeletons of 
skulls of American Indians do look don't look exactly the same, and that's partly due to genetic drift. You know, these things like founder effect and genetic drift that we talked about earlier. The American Indian population is a tiny subset of of the um, Asian population. Um, when when the analysis was done on skulls subsequently, it was found that it, the the skull looked um, like the Ainu of Japan and other another Asian group. I can't recall the name of it. Um, so, and and that's fairly similar to other very ancient skeletons found in the Americas. So, you know, the overall general appearance of populations do change over time, and and that's even more evidence that you know American Indians have been present in the Americas for so long. Um, there has been subtle changes due to these processes um, over the years. So it was a very ugly battle. It hurt. There were lots of people hurt. There were a lot of scientists who were very deeply hurt by this whole thing. Um, you can imagine how this was the best preserved skeleton science have ever seen in the Americas. Um, and it has now become the most intensely studied skeleton in American history. Um, and the people that were studying it were the best um, that, that you could gather together. Douglas Owsley at the Smithsonian headed it up. Um, and there were um, this involved, and he's a highly skilled um, forensic scientist. So he's done an awful lot of work uh, on ancient skeletons uh, and modern skeletons. Um, so uh, he headed up a very large team and they, um, they did extensive analysis of the, the skeleton to determine because the, one of the challenges with this was that the skeleton was washed out of the ground. Okay, so they didn't have any of the bones that were positioned in the ground where the, the skeleton originally lay. That was washed out. Um, and so using forensics, they were able to, to learn an awful lot about the skeleton, the position that it was buried, what sort of injuries this person had suffered in, its, in their life. The most amazing thing they discovered was that it had a, a very archaic spear point in the pelvis. So this individual had been speared several, quite a few years, probably a decade, over a decade before, had been speared by a spear point. The spear had broken off and the stone spear had remained embedded in his pelvis. Oh. Just a very, very freakish... I'm not sure it was an accident. It might have been a deliberate. It could have been an accident. You never know. Um, but that spear point, Indigenous Americans two or 3,000 years ago weren't, weren't using those types of spear point. It's a very ancient spear point. Hmm. Um, so in 2015, they uh, published the mitochondrial genome of Kennewick Man and they published, so, and they also sequenced his genome. And he has the X2A DNA lineage, and it's the oldest form of that lineage. So all X2A lineages found in American Indians descend from the X2A lineage that's found in Kennewick Man, um, which is absolutely devastating for the heartland theory. Okay, so let's back the up to the heart. Point, oh, sorry. Sorry, the, the spear point also grounds it. So the skeleton was clearly older than two or 3,000 years old because they've They've found these spear points, the same types of spear points in multiple individuals that are 
seven to 9,000 years old. So Kennewick Man has also been very firmly dated to 9,000 years ago. So the gold standard in radiocarbon dating of skeletons is carbon dating of collagen that's been isolated from the bones. So they grind up the bones. Um, so they, they drill into the interior of the bone where the bone has not been has been protected, the bone material has been protected. They isolate collagen using a chemical process and then they carbon date the collagen. So this is pure. It's had all these impurities purified away and they carbon date the collagen. And that's been done, that was done 12 times on Kennewick Man and all of the dates were very close to around about 9,000 years ago. They also, uh, the Heartlanders also pick up on, um, specifically David Reed, he's just written a book on this. He's claiming that the, all he's ignoring all of those dates and he's claiming that the Kennewick man was actually two and a half thousand years old based on carbonate datings. Now there were carbonate datings that were done on Kennewick man on, on material carbonate, calcium carbonate that had accumulated on the bones. And, but this is a very, very common process with ancient bones that have been underground, underground for thousands of years. Um, the carbonates are derived from carbon in the atmosphere that gets dissolved like your soda water, gets dissolved in water and then percolates down through the soil and it precipitates, it becomes attached to the bones. So the scientists were just interested in when the carbonates formed and they formed about 2,500 years ago. So the heartlanders are latching on to this carbonate date, totally ignoring the gold standard um, collagen dates on Kennewick Man and and then completely misinterpreting the uh, the DNA evidence as well. It's a very, very tall order, but uh, you don't underestimate the Heartlanders. They're going to persist with claiming that Kennewick Man is, uh, is uh, descended from Nephi, but um, I should add that his entire genome was also found to be related to Native Americans and not has no Middle Eastern DNA. What is the attraction that Heartlanders have for Kennewick Man? I didn't know anything about this until I started communicating with you on the subject. I mean, couldn't they just leave it alone and say, we don't care about it, we have all this other evidence over here? Why is it that they're so focused on making the Kennewick Man fit their theory of the Heartland model? It's because it's got the X2A DNA lineage. Yeah. So um, Rodney Meldrum, the entire Heartland theory is built on the X lineage coming from the Middle East. It came, it came from Lehigh. Rodney Meldrum is totally convinced the X lineage is from the Middle East. It belongs to Nephi, to Lehigh brought it to the Americas. So he has to, he's, he feels compelled. He would be better off just to ignore it completely and say nothing. But Kennewick Man was, you know, it's well-known, very famous discovery. It's uh, a lot of people are, are aware of it. And, uh, so he feels compelled to twist the science to fit. Um, and David Reed is the is the he's been handed the uh, the job of doing it. But yeah, the science is just utterly compelling. Because he's the, nine thousand years old, and that, see that's sorry doesn't fit with the uh, 
the Book of Mormon time period at all. Right. So like young earth creationists, when the carbon dating does not fit your theory, then you have to discredit the carbon dating. That's right, because the flood. The flood um, messed up all carbon dates. So they'll quite happily use carbon dates that uh, fit within the, conveniently fit within the Book of Mormon period, but they won't, they don't believe anything that happened prior to the flood. Because, uh, yeah, the, the, the flood mucked up the uh, carbon dating. I'm thinking that if they're able to embrace Kennewick Man, who's found way the heck out in Washington, at the other side of the country, from the original Hill Cumorah and New York State, then they must have in mind an expansive Nephite civilization covering the, the land from sea to sea. Yeah, yeah. In David Reed's book, he's, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, they've done this big study in South America and Central America and uh, tiny traces of Jewish DNA that's been found, post-Columbus Jewish DNA. That's very, very tantalising for for them. So he's, he, uh, he's now starting to claim that that uh, could be evidence in support of the Book of Mormon. Uh, right. Because, you know, they just, everything's been contracted down to 6,000 years. Their view of the world is that's, um, it's that creationist mindset. Once you've formed your conclusion, then all the evidence just fits. So, yeah, the, yeah I, I, uh, I guess they're just, they're just going to twist and, and reinterpret and misinterpret the evidence uh, to suit their, their ends. They have a large and even growing following, don't they? Oh, it's huge. There's, you've got five to ten thousand people are attending their conferences. Um, but they, uh, it's not the the younger generation. They just they're really struggling to get the younger generation. So their appeal is really to the the much older generation. If you see photographs of people attending their conferences, the average age would have to be in the seventies. Mm. So let me ask you this: Have you had some interactions with uh, the publisher of this upcoming book? I think by did you say David Reed? Yes, yeah. About Kennewick Man. Yeah, no, I've I've spelt out in clear detail with the publisher where David David's conclusions are wrong, and I've even corresponded with scientists uh, Jim Chaffee, one of the scientists involved in the uh, carbon dating of Kennewick Man, and he has corresponded with David Reed, Jim Chaffee has corresponded with David Reed and told him the carbonate dates are not dates of Kennewick Man. You, you are, these are carbon date, carbon da, these are, these are dates of when the carbonate formed on the skeleton. You're carbon dating basically carbon dioxide from the atmosphere that washed down through the soil and then precipitated on the skeleton. So it's not even the skeleton. You're carbon dating carbon out of the atmosphere. So you've got a guy who's top-notch in the field who actually top was involved. In the field has told David Reed, you're completely wrong in your interpretation of the evidence. And what is David Reed's response? Nothing. Doesn't respond. And he keeps making these false claims. There are times when I just, it, it's incredibly frustrating. If the scientist who has told, who's done the work said, no, the carbonate dates aren't related to the body. They're car- they're, the scientists did it because they're interested in when the carbonate's formed. It's just like a routine thing. They just do it for fun. Mm-hmm. But if you read the reports, 
the detailed reports that these scientists do, they never draw any conclusion about the age of the skeleton from the carbonates because they just did it because they're interested in... Because the carbonate layer, carbonates form and are deposited in soil layers all over the world all the time um, because carbon is dissolving. Carbon dioxide in the atmosphere gets dissolved in rainwater and it percolates down through the soil and then at certain positions in the soil, um, evaporation above will cause this the carbonates to, to concentrate and then precipitate out. And they precipitate out as calcium carbonate. And there was it's just by chance that this, um, the skeleton of Kennewick Man, which was buried about a metre underground, um, it's just by chance that the carbonate layer in the surrounding soil was at the same level at which Kennewick Man was buried. So that's why they dated the carbonates. If the carbonates had been, uh, layer had formed, say, uh, 20 or 30 centimetres above Kennewick Man, they never would have been done. So it's just a, a fluke of uh, history that the carbonate layer um, was found at the same level, uh, depth as Kennewick Man was, was buried 9,000 years ago. Well, it strikes me that if, as you say, the Heartlanders couple their belief of a, um, a massive uh, Nephite presence in the Americas and a very fundamentalist view about the age of the Earth, then they have to question, and they actually cannot accept the dating of Kennewick Man because if, what you're, if I'm understanding what you're saying, Kennewick Man, according to the carbon dating, actually lived prior to the creation of the earth according to the Heartlanders' belief. Yeah. See how this is where the fixed conclusion comes in. So any evidence is just thrown at, like collagen evidence, not interested. They don't look at it. So they, what they say, what David implies in his book, is the scientists were so biased, they ignored the collagen dates and they just, so they ignored the carbonate dates and just focused exclusively on the collagen. Well, they did that for a reason because the carbonate dates are not related to the skeleton. So I understand. Yeah, I got it. When you've got that conclusion fixed, you, the it's that's the other very sad thing about David's book is that he's implying that the motives he's 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 implying that the scientists have an ulterior motive that they they. Uh, because their conclusions are so fixed that the skeleton is 9,000 years old, they then throw out evidence that doesn't fit with that. So they've thrown out, they ignore, totally ignore the carbonate evidence, carbonate dates because they don't fit when they don't, they're irrelevant. It doesn't sound like he's projecting at all, does it? No, not at all. <laughs> Can I talk to you about one other thing? And I want to get to your, your new book in the very last uh, few minutes we have. Well, this is a... Yeah, okay, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Oh, it's about the two Camoras. Now we're going back to the limited geography theory because we don't want to leave them completely alone. They might feel neglected. But this whole idea that I kind of just sort of uh, became accustomed to, I was immersed in it as an apologist, this idea of two Camoras. Well, there's this one Camora up there in New York. That's where Joseph Smith got the plates. Um, but there's this other Camora, see, because this other Camora down there in Central America, that's where, that's, uh, that's where the battle happened. That's where the Camora exists that's described in the Book of Mormon. And somehow this, this um, little hill up in New York just sort of got mistakenly uh, named Kumora through some means that had nothing to do really with Joseph Smith or anything like that. 
Um, but it's this two Kimura theory. And I look back on it now and I think, my goodness, they actually had to create a second hill Kimura in order to make their theory work. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, it's just crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> Look, it's about a 3,000 or 2,000 mile journey. Yeah. Ryan, I carried those, what are they, how much do they weigh? 60 pounds? I, the estimates di differ whether you're talking about real gold or Tumbaga. Yeah. But yeah, carried those plates um, for, for whatever reason, we don't know. He was directed by God. He went there by way of Manti. He had to go out there to dedicate the temple site. Yeah. Maybe you met Kennewick man when he was out there. Yeah. Yeah. I have no but idea. They might have had lunch is, together. This is what happens when you get a, a small cluster of apologists at BYU, because these were all written well before the internet came. Um, I, I think these sort of theories would have been shot down in flames very quickly if we'd had social media and people had been able to voice their opinions about these things early on. But yeah, this this is yeah, it's because yes, their conclusion is fixed. This book is historical, so we have to make it work. Um, and so they had to come up with a theory, because they they have all of the events taking place in Mesoamerica, they didn't. They had them taking over the mines, they didn't. The mines figured it out all by themselves. They're very smart people, and yeah, I mean, it, I mean it's just it's no less crazy than the. The reinterpretations of the science, or um, that the Heartlanders are uh, coming up with, they're just butchering the scriptures. Um, one butchers the science, one butchers the scriptures. And yet we have these. Yet we have these two groups of apologists who have, I would say, certain weaknesses with their different theories. They don't see them that way, I know. They see them as strengths. But yeah. I think as objectively as they can be, I see the weaknesses in, in both, and the strengths in both, as I talked about before. But they are at each other's throats about who is correct and who's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and I think they probably hate each other more than they hate me. <laughs> I've, uh, yeah, I've been ignored for a little while. Well, that's all going to change probably with your new book. Yeah, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Tell us about your new book. Well, it's 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 pretty much the same sort of structure. It uh, looks more closely at the. Um, I mean, it, there's been a lot of mitochondrial work done since I published Losing Lost Tribe, so I've probably accumulated about 120 research papers on mitochondrial DNA. So it is about 16,000 individuals that have been analysed now. Um, so there's a, just a lot more work, but also the uh, I, I introduced the genomic research that's been done in the last 10 or so years. The whole genome was inaccessible until about 2009, 2010, because um, the genome, once it was sequenced in about 2000, it was... It was just it was just so expensive to sequence an entire genome, but now you can you can do a whole genome a fraction of the cost. But then the technology for analysing the the inf, the um, the mutations that occur in the genome is about a, roughly a million informative ancestry mutations in the human genome, and the technology for determining those is now a tiny cost. As you know, you can get a DNA test now for under $100, mm -hmm. and that'll include an, um, 
genotyping of half a million markers for ancestry on the genome. Um, so, yeah, I talk about uh, the genomic work, the work that's revealed these ancient groups, the Denisovans, Neanderthals and Australasians. And then we've got, um, and then some of the work has been done on uh, current populations looking at where their DNA came from. So it's, it's bringing people up to speed on on the latest uh, work that's been discovered. Now, there are some really fascinating things that have been discovered. In, we haven't talked about Polynesians very much, if at all. But, Can we um, talk about the Polynesians for a second? By the way, yeah, your new book, does it relate to Mormonism as well, or is it exclusively Absolutely. Well, you see, I, you know, in Australia, in Sydney, I grew up in Sydney, and we, there's Polynesian members of the church all around me. And they're always talked of themselves as, as being, they always regarded themselves as being descended from the Lamanites. Well, right, there's that whole Haggath ex, uh, yeah, episode in the Book of Mormons. And I, grew, and I grew up understanding that, you know, the Polynesian Cultural right. Center, that's because of all the Lamanite DNA, yeah. the Lamanite people who went out there, uh, descended from Haggath, and so he, yeah. he's from the Middle East, so we're going to have all these Lamanites out there in the Polynesian Islands. So now, there's yeah. been DNA research done out there, and surely, Surely, at least out in Polynesia, there must be some Middle Eastern DNA dating to Book of Mormon times. Yeah. Is there? So. There is? <laughs> yeah. No, when they descended from Asians. Ah, um, shoot. The Asians again? Yeah, it's the Asians. They're, they're, the Polynesians is just amazing. Um, but, uh, yeah, look, they've done some recent, very recent and exciting uh, work on the entire genomes of Polynesians. Um, just to quickly summarise, the Polynesians migrated out of, like Australia and Papua New Guinea were colonised by humans about forty to 50,000 years ago. So there's several waves of colonisation of the Pacific. So there's a big coloni- there was an early colonisation, colonization, but then the Polynesians about 3,000 years ago, um, sort of in Taiwan or northern Philippines is where they sort of originate, they developed this amazing... Um, technology for sailing and navigation and then they just very rapidly sailed out into the Pacific. So they reached um, Samoa and Fiji about uh, 3,000 years ago and then about 1,200 years ago, up as recently as 800 years ago, they colonised New Zealand but they colonised all of the other islands of the Pacific very, very rapidly sailing in very large double, you know, outrigger canoes, uh, taking families, animals, pets, you know, you name it. Um, amazing um, colonised. But they've recently uh, sequenced the genomes of some ancient Polynesians from Tonga and the genomes of Eastern Polynesians, and they've found Native American DNA in parts of French Polynesia or Eastern Polynesia, even into Easter Island. And it looks like there were two different times of entry of that DNA. The DNA on Easter Island, much of that DNA, uh, American Indian DNA on Easter Island, they can tell from the, the, the analysing the lengths of the chunks of Polynesian DNA and Middle Eastern, uh, sorry, American Indian DNA in the Polynesians, they can tell when that American Indian DNA arrived. And the Easter Island um, DNA came from Chile um, within the period that Europeans, since Europeans have arrived. 
So that was a, a late entry. But they have detected uh, Colombian DNA from a tribe known as the Xenu that arrived in eastern Polynesia around about 800 years ago. So this is before Columbus. Now, they don't know, they can't prove at this stage how it got there, but given that the Polynesians were the most amazing sailors on the planet, my guess is that they reached uh, South America and then they returned um, back into Polynesia and brought with them uh, probably some South American brides or even families, we don't know. So that's, I mean, that gives you, you know, the, the, the whole genome research is always, it's just going to be, is revealing some fascinating insights into, into the ancestry of these, these groups. But, but it's, it's also confirmed what we already knew about Polynesians. So the, the genomic DNA has shown very clearly that uh, they, they come from Taiwan, the Philippines, and they've, they've got DNA from all parts of, um, of Southeast Asia in the Polynesian genomes. Simon, no Middle Eastern DNA. No Middle Eastern DNA. But Simon, no. here's the deal. I, I'm sorry, someone had knocked on the door. I had to run away for just a second. I had apologized right when you're getting to a critical part about what you're talking about, about the two times when the um, yeah. DNA came in to the Polynesian. And I was hoping that one of those two would be at or around 55 BCE, which was in, that's when Haggath, according to the <laughs> Book of Mormon, left and never came back. Uh, was yeah. one of those two dates, 55 BCE or thereabouts? Yeah. No, it doesn't fit because as, as, as we talked about the chromosomal chunks getting smaller and smaller with recombination, Yeah, they can tell they've estimated and it's about 800 years ago. I think For that recent? It's either, I'd have to check, but it's, I think it's either 800 AD or 800 years ago, so it's pretty close. It's about 1,000 years ago. Oh. Um, so the, the fascinating thing is that it definitely came in before Europeans had uh, colonized the Pacific. Oh, I see. Well, Haggath was a little over 2,000 years ago. Yeah, yeah, so they don't line up at all. Um, oh. That's sadly. too bad. That's too yeah. bad. I'm in here swinging. I'm trying to find any way to make this work. And I think the one in a million chance that yet, yet, Middle Eastern DNA may yet be found among the DNA of uh, Native Americans is the best chance I have so far. One other thing that I did want to mention, I don't want to take too much time. We've got a few more minutes left. Um, there has been, and I think most people know this, but there's been a change in the introduction to the Book of Mormon over the years, which I think has been prompted by DNA research. And you know what I'm talking about, talking yeah, about the, yeah. uh, you go ahead, then you, you, you explain it. Yeah, I mean, they did, there's a couple of words. They um, took a word out and changed it a bit. So it went from the uh, Lamanites being the principal ants, um, so Native Americans, sorry, yeah, the Lamanites being the principal ancestors of American Indians, as we all were taught and all believed to being among the ancestors of the American Indians. So there is that acknowledgement. But, look, I, I just think in finishing, this is all just getting ridiculous. Um, how about the, there are other enormous complication, uh, uh, consequences um, of the Book of Mormon claims. You're, it's, there are many racist uh, things that have come out of the Book of Mormon, the obsession with the problems with skin colour that the church has had 
for years, they all stem from the Book of Mormon because it was the first document that Joseph Smith produced linking skin colour with with um, righteousness. And But it's also it, it's a, doc, a document that robs uh, Indigenous cultures of their history. It superimposes this false um, white man's mythology on the real history of American Indians, which is amazing. You know, American culture, American Indian cultures have had enormous impact on the world. The plants that they've domesticated over thousands and thousands of years have had an enormous impact on the world. And it's just wrong to be continuing this mythology when it, it has consequences. Um, if you talk to Indigenous members of the church who have left, they've been deeply hurt by the the racism that comes that is derived from the Book of Mormon um, because it's it robs them of their culture and it's very sad to this this fight to keep it as a historical document is preserving this racism and if there's any you know the church needs to distance itself from that racism and they're going to have to they're going to have to get rid of Scriptures from the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon needs to be edited to remove racist scripture, and it needs to be. I think the church is, and I, the church maybe. I think Greg, uh, Greg Prince believes that the church is on the the path with the destination of distancing itself from historicity, and in some ways, the you know the essay is a fumbled attempt at going down that direction, but. It's, it's just getting to the point now where it's just ridiculous and good on the community of Christ for showing the guts 30 years ago to face the, face the truth. Who knows when the LDS church will have the guts to face the obvious truth. It is a question mm-hmm. because they do note that in the essay, in the very first paragraph, they do stake out the one truth claim that they do not appear willing to budge on. And speaking of the mm-hmm. Book of Mormon, it says it contains a record of God's dealings with three groups of people who migrated from the Near East or West Asia to the the Americas hundreds of years before the arrival of Europeans. Mm. So they want to make sure that that is clear, that they're not going to budge on that, at least not now. Yeah. Yeah, I I think there has to be a regime change for them to really shift. I can't see any chance of it changing in the current leadership. Um, well, you know what they say about progress. Progress is achieved one death at a time. That's right. I think there's even you can even say that about scientists. Oh, I think it has universal application. I wasn't just saying it only applies to the Mormon Church, <laughs> but I think it definitely applies to the Mormon Church as well. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, Dr. Sutherton, it has been so, so great to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your insights and your knowledge and your expertise with us. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure chatting. Well, I look forward to hearing this when it when it drops, and it may drop this weekend. Ooh, okay. Let and me I know. Let, uh, I've got a few friends to tell. I will definitely let you know, okay? Yeah. So thank you again. I appreciate it. And until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. Tiny kangaroo down, sport. Tiny kangaroo down. Tiny kangaroo down, sport. Tiny kangaroo down. Keep me cockatoo cool, curl. Keep me cockatoo cool. Oh, don't go acting the fool, curl. Just keep me cockatoo cool all together now. Tiny kangaroo down sport. 
Tie me kangaroo down. Tie me kangaroo down, sport. Tie me kangaroo down. And take me koala back, Jack. Take me koala back. He lives somewhere out on the track, Mac. So take me koala back all together now. Tie me kangaroo down, sport. Tie me kangaroo down. Tie me kangaroo down, sport. Tie me kangaroo down. And mind me platypus duck, Bill. Mind me platypus duck. Oh, don't let him go running amuck, Bill. Just mind me platypus duck all together now. Tie me kangaroo down, sport. Tie me kangaroo down. Tie me kangaroo down, sport. Tie me kangaroo down. Play your didgeridoo, blue. Play your didgeridoo. Uh, like, keep playing till I shoot through, blue. Play your didgeridoo. All together now, tie me kangaroo down, sport. Tie me kangaroo down. Tie me kangaroo down, sport. Tie me kangaroo down. Tan me hide when I'm dead, Fred. Tan me hide. When I'm dead. So we tanned his hide when he died, Clyde. And that's it hanging on the shed all together now. Time me kangaroo down, sport. Time me kangaroo down. Time me kangaroo down, sport. Time me kangaroo down. <laughs>